This is Jocko Podcast number 113 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I instantly lifted my M4 as my eyes scanned the terrain above us. I knew without looking that John and the other guys were moving as soon as my weapon came up. Reno took off at a dead sprint and disappeared 20 feet to our left. Seconds afterward, screams came from the area. I moved forward, scanning the environment as I moved, wanting to come to Reno's aid as soon as possible, but unwilling to leave behind my tactical sense. I heard three shots ring out as a Taliban fighter tried to exit the shallow cut that they had been hiding in. His companion was locked in a fight with Reno. The dog was destroying his opponent, blood quickly covering the man's clothes. I called Reno out of the fight and squeezed off several rounds as the man reached for his weapon. We quickly searched the area before moving on, our pace even quicker than before. The gunfire for sure had given away our position. Legs and lungs burned, the elevation taking its toll as we finally reached our destination. Sitting on the edge of that mountain, waiting for our ride, I looked back at the last few hours. I patted Reno's head. Twice tonight he had saved my life. Twice I owed him yet another debt of gratitude. His body shivered slightly as the cold wind bit into him. Now that we weren't moving, the cold settled quickly. I pulled off my coat and wrapped him in it, pulling his body against mine to keep him warm. Tonight he had saved my life. Tonight he had saved my brother's lives. And that is a little excerpt from the book, Trident Canine Warriors, my tale from the training ground to the battlefield with elite Navy SEAL canines by Mike Ritland, a SEAL who ended up working with dogs, training dogs, and eventually starting a company called Trikos International that trains dogs for, for the most elite forces in the world. And that was an excerpt that was from an operator talking about one of the dogs that Mike had trained. And Mike's written two other books besides Trident Canine Warriors. He also wrote Team Dog and Navy Seal Dogs, which is a book aimed at teenagers. And tonight we are lucky enough to have Mike with us on the podcast to talk about how the hell he ended up doing what he is doing. So, Mike Ritlin, welcome aboard. It's a uh, both a pleasure and an honor to be here. I appreciate you having me. So, we always have to start where you started. Tell us a little bit about Waterloo, Iowa. <laughs> well, it's uh, you know it's one of those one of those spots where I guess it's uh, it's a good place to be from. Uh, not a whole lot happening in Iowa, which uh, honestly is why. Part of the reason why I got into dogs because there, there's not a whole lot else going on. Uh, wrestling obviously is huge in Iowa, and I had the uh, the, the pleasure of growing up during the Gable era uh, nice. of Iowa wrestling. And my dad wrestled with Dan Gable in high school, um, and so you know, being kind of ingrained in that culture growing up, uh, even though I never wrestled because he uh, he can hardly walk mm. uh, and, and is so beat up from it, he he swam, and so all of us swam. Long story short. It was still a big part of my life, but uh, so I, you know, growing up, kind of having that mentality ingrained, um, 
you know, was, was a big, big proponent of, of where I'm at today and, and why I got involved in both the Navy and in dogs because of the appreciation for, uh, you know, for that mentality. Um, in terms of Waterloo, it's a, you know, suburban town, 70,000 people, um, I'd say lower middle class, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of influence from Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis. Uh, pretty, pretty rough high school uh, growing up there. It uh, wasn't wasn't the best of times for me, but uh, taught me a lot of hard lessons about perseverance and uh, doing things even when you don't want to do them, and and uh, facing things that you're not not uh, willing to to be comfortable with facing and, and things of that nature. And and uh, I was on the swim team and, and uh, influenced by my grandfathers in terms of their service in World War II. And and I uh, just always wanted to make a uh, an impact in terms of serving my country. I know I'm a little younger than you, but for me, I was in junior high when the first Gulf War broke out and mm-hmm. it scared, scared the crap out of me. Uh, a couple of years later, I was like, where do I sign up? Like, you know, that that progression, you know, just in that couple year period uh, is just crazy. But um, but it, you know, those, those experiences and seeing some, some terrorist activity as a young kid growing up, it really, really shaped no different than, uh, than how it shapes, you know, the guys we're constantly going against in the, in the generations growing up, which has a huge impact, but, uh, from a recruiting standpoint, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was something that blue collar town, patriotic grandfathers were, were pipe hitters in the, in the world war two and, and, uh, what they do in world war two. So my my mom's dad was on a minesweeper uh, in the Navy. He was a cook, straight out of you know Navy <laughs> Stephen Seagal, just a cook. But he was just a cook. Uh, but he um, he was on a fleet of minesweepers. It was ninety eight in the fleet in the Mediterranean, and uh, two of them came back, and he was on one of them. Um, my dad's dad was in the army. He actually just tells you how times have changed. He uh, he beat an, an English Allied soldier to death in a bar fight somewhere in Europe uh, during the war and they just sent him home and discharged him mm-hmm. um, you know but uh, I didn't I didn't know him real well I uh, mm-hmm. met him a couple of times he, he had a pretty rough rough go um, you know after after the war and, and uh, was basically an alcoholic and I only saw him three or four times maybe growing up before mm-hmm. he died but uh, but my mom's dad as it was a huge influence you know I, I talked with him a lot about I was always fascinated by um, you know his stories and, and his outlook and and uh, just you know he wasn't wasn't uh you know aversive to talking about it uh enjoyed talking about it but uh yeah just it was very inspiring and, and it just made me want to serve uh you know i've, I've kind of always uh, leveraged my decisions in life on how i'm going to make the most bang for my buck and get the most out of every decision mm-hmm. and i felt like uh you know it was it was my my turn to to you know carry the torch for a little bit how did you hear about the teams uh, it was a popular mechanics article uh, that I read when Jack. I was in like ninth grade, uh, and uh, it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it showed, you know, like, you know, to me, like one one of the things that I think recruits a lot of us is saying that it's it's actually the toughest military training. Yeah. People are d- by yeah, default. Sure. Well, I'm going to go do that then for sure. Uh, so that was part of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I read that that and, and that was at a time when I was getting, you know, I, I got uh, got rolled up pretty hard a few times in high school, got jumped. Yeah, yeah, you were talking about that in your first book. Yeah, you got rolled up a couple times and beat down. Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was a, a runt in high school. Like my freshman year, I was five four, one hundred and five pounds. That's fun. Uh, and and that was when it happened. You mm-hmm. know, uh, juniors and seniors just you know waylaying on me, and uh, you know I, I didn't I didn't have much of a chance there, but. Uh, 
you know, and, and even when I graduated, I was the same height I am now, and I weighed 140, you know. <laughs> so when I, my first, uh, first ID in the Navy, I was 145, <laughs> and I'm 5'11", you know, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've put on a few pounds. So did you, did you do dive fair program or anything like that? I didn't. I, uh, when I, I, I originally tried to be a corpsman, and uh, at that time, this was 96, they're like, yeah, we're pretty heavy on corpsman, pick something else, and I was like, how about intel specialist you know so mm-hmm. i i uh, went to isa school right out of boot camp and i when i graduated high school i was 17 still so i had to wait until i turned 18 to mm-hmm. go to boot camp uh so i went to boot camp in august uh isa school and then checked into buds uh in spring of of 97 but i was the youngest youngest guy in the class and the whole the whole deal and what did you weigh then uh, I worked out pretty heavy in A school. I got up to about one fifty five, I think. So get, yeah, I mean, I, after yeah. I mean, I see pictures of uh, like you know post hell week and first phase. Like I look like I just broke out of Auschwitz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing to me, you know. Yeah, but um, I weighed one seventy five when I showed up. Same and, height. Yeah, five eleven, one seventy five, and I weighed one eighty five when I graduated. So I put on 10 pounds. I, yeah, I did the same. I, I weighed 165. I think if you're a little bit scrawny, because I was like a scrawny. I know 175 might not sound scrawny, but I wasn't. I was. It was a pretty scrawny 175. Yeah. And then they they put a little meat on the bones, as oh, yeah. they say, because yeah. you can eat whatever. I would order a Domino's cheese pizza, mm-hmm. extra cheese pizza, just about every night. Yeah, I, I had a same similar ritual. You remember the country store? Yeah. Uh, so at the end of every day after dinner, I would go to the country store and there was that little McDonald's next to it. Oh yeah. You'd get some of that. I'd I'd get a quarter pounder with cheese value meal, um, and eat that. And, uh, a box, literally a box of 10, uh, oatmeal cream pies (laughs) and and a 64 ounce leaded Gatorade every night. There you go. And and wolfed it down. No problem. Yeah. And I gained like eight pounds. The the thing is, and I was telling somebody about this, you know, you run to chow and back. Every every meal you run to chow. It's a mile there and it's a mile back. Yeah, and you go three or four times a day mm-hmm. for because sometimes you go at midnight. So that means you're running between six and eight miles every day before you even include any of the actual training. So you're doing a lot of physical activity. You can eat a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can eat a ton, especially at that age too. Oh yeah, that's and right. You, and then you <laughs> couple it with being cold most of the day. That's true. You know? Yeah, you're burning. I wonder what you're burning for calories. It's a massive amount of calories. It's got to be 10K plus. Yeah. You know? I, mean, yeah the, I didn't even think about the cold part. Oh, yeah. Because you are yeah, yeah, just yeah. cold all the time, just hammering calories away. Yeah. Um, so you get done with buds, and and you you were a swimmer, right? I was, yeah. So you're one of those people that I talk about, like swimming was, for you, was just super easy. Actually, no. Uh, I got I got rolled. Uh, I started with 214. I got rolled six days before going to San Clemente Island for swims. You now, loser. Yeah, What's up about. with that? Well, so here, here's How the, is that? I, I pinched my sciatic nerve at, at Laguna okay. doing land naps. Because you're not a loser. So then I just failed everything. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of the kind of a running joke. Like, no, I got rolled for swims. Because it was the first thing that I, I failed three of. I failed everything after Laguna cause I, with, the, with the injury. But I, I will say that um, – because I grew up in Iowa, like I, the, my first time in the ocean was at Bud's. Like, I mean, I had been <laughs> knee high water at Cocoa right. Beach on spring break or whatever, right. but I'd never been out past the surf. I'd never swam at night. And, Did it freak you out? Uh, a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just kind of, it was like an over, over stimulus type thing. But, mm-hmm. uh, for me, you know, not having a black line to look at, you know, and having to guide off the coast, um, you know, was, was a bit of a challenge. But the, for me, the biggest thing was actually swimming with fins. 
Yeah, you know? that's you know what? That's a good point. Because that's you, a good point. People, it's a totally different muscle. Yeah, well, and you're you know from from having swam. I mean, I grew up when I was from five until I graduated high school. I mean, I had uh, partial scholarship offers, uh, you know, to some local colleges for for swimming and. And, uh, you know, for me, it, it was it came pretty natural. I mean, I was never a state champion, but I went to state and, and did all right. Um, but, you know, showing so growing up with that muscle memory uh, of how to swim without ever using fins, when I, the first time I put those on, those duck feet are like two by fours. You know, I mean, they just destroyed my ankles, especially being kind of scrawny oh, anyway. Yeah. So for the for first phase, like my feet and ankles were just destroyed the whole time. You know, like for me, it was hard to swim, and I mean, I, I could pass, but I wasn't I wasn't uh, you know the guys out in the front just turtle back and yeah. you know having fun. Who like, were those guys? I mean, there were some Olympic swimmers, yeah, and water polo players. Yeah, that, you know, see, I, I had a couple of those guys where I just thought these guys were just studs, yeah. but they were swimmers. Yeah, so that's why I, I figured you were breezing through the swims too. No, I mean, I, you know, it, they didn't they didn't bother me, you know, but I, I was middle of the road. I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't blowing anybody out of the water. I, I think for them, some of it is that uh, you know in Iowa we were probably a little behind the power curve technology wise. Mm-hmm. Now they do use a lot of fins little cheater fins and training fins and stuff and so there's there's some more to it than that plus the the guys that I saw that did really well were were more muscular than I was you know for me it was like those fins were about a quarter of my body weight <laughs> you know and it was literally it was like having concrete shoes going for a jog I mean it was like uh, yeah, it didn't do me any favors. It, it took some yeah. getting used to for sure. But the runs and swims. I mean, what about the runs? Runs, no problem. No either. problem. Um, you know, I, really, there was nothing that I I would say that I struggled with. Uh, I wasn't the best at everything, yeah. but I, I you know I wasn't getting gooned either. Uh, yeah, you know, I was kind of a gray man on purpose, which is the best place to be. In <laughs> One both, of my but. buddies, uh, he would say that they started the goon squad every single time with him. Yeah, well, I know. <laughs> goon squad. If you're if you're slow on a run, and you're get to sort of the end and then there's a, an instructor waiting and these from this point on you're getting gooned which means you're going to do a bunch of crap yeah. and it's going to suck and this guy was the beginning of the goon squad every time which yeah. is not fun yeah so what year was it when you graduated buds um so it was uh spring of 98 uh, and then you went to team three yeah i went, I went to boot camp or uh Benning uh, jump school. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, back when they still did that, and then uh, and then from there straight to team three, uh, and then STT, and and I got my did the Chiefs board thing, which was uh, I wish they still did that. Yeah. You know, I think that's a sacrilege that they do it the way they do it now. But um, yeah, I got got my trident in October of '98. Uh, waited until January to cl- uh, to jump into my first platoon, and that was an Arg Alpha platoon, so that was a oh, 20, twenty-two month workup with. Six months of fleet X ship <laughs> deployments prior to even deploying. I did know. two ARGs. Yeah, yeah. Man. Back-to-back ARGs at Team One, Park in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think they're valuable. What ship did you deploy on? Uh, the Duluth. Oh, right on. LPD-6. Yep. yep. <laughs> oh, man, so that thing's from 1965 or 67 yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they, they built these ships, Echo, to take troops from here to Vietnam and drop them off. But then by the time we were on them, they were just doing full six-month deployments. So it was straight-up World War II-style canvas racks, mm. so little canvas racks. There'd be four people sleeping stacked up like four bunks yeah. with these little canvas racks. So it was old school. Yeah. <laughs> it, but old I, school. I will say this. I mean, the experiences in terms of big Navy, like you don't get those in For the sure. games. You know? and, For sure. And doing the fleet X's, we were on the, the Abraham Lincoln and got to stand on the bridge watching F-14s land and take off and – um, you know, we got to do some pretty neat stuff that uh, that I'm glad glad we got to be a part of. You what know? was awesome for me was we were doing because when you're when you're with them, you're with 
uh, the Marine Corps. And so we did all these operations in conjunction with the Marine Corps. So for, I was a comms guy. What were you? Uh, Intel guy. So I was a comms guy. So I was always interacting with all the other units that would be out there for communications and then coordinating and all that stuff. So I had a real leg up when it came to working with conventional forces, which if you were in a regular spec ops platoon back then, you wouldn't ever work with them. Yeah. I mean, you'd rarely, very rarely work with conventional mm-hmm. forces. So I did two ARGs where I got to work with Marines and do massive, you know, battalion-sized operations and yeah. had to coordinate all those things. So it it, it gave me a, a good introduction. You'd get, you'd get guys back in the teams back then. They, they wouldn't even know they wouldn't even know, they wouldn't even understand what a Marine Corps battalion was mm-hmm. or or what a company was or yeah. what a platoon was. They just wouldn't know. Now everybody knows we've gotten more professional as time has gone by. But that gave me a, I was real lucky that I had that yeah. ARG platoon experience. Yeah, I mean, like I said, j- just getting, uh, you know, kind of the, the big Navy perspective on a lot of things I think is is valuable, you know. Um, and, and it was just neat from a, for me, at least from a tradition standpoint, I mean, because we we did a about a three week exercise in Australia where we tested out a fast catamaran that they were testing for 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 us. Mm-hmm. Basically, the thought was, is this thing to do like fifty five knots? You know, and it's the size of a you know it's bigger than like a, a guided missile cruiser. I mean, it's Dang. a medium sized ship with you know a, a, a hole in the middle as, mm-hmm. a, as a cat. Um, but so the, the the thought process was we could deploy like a, a whole task element or at least a platoon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember the I think they were with the Hurricane class or whatever those little oh, yeah, NSW yeah, yeah. Am, yeah. amphibious yeah. boats that was kind of the same yeah. principle and they they canned it after a while. But um, same kind of principle is that but these things do fifty five knots and it was weird. You know we're out floating around testing these things out doing uh, some some exercises with some uh, Norforce Australian guys and. It, it, was, it was more like being on a plane than a boat in terms of the, the way it felt, like when mm-hmm. you're trying to sleep or whatever. I mean, imagine a boat that big doing 55 knots. That's crazy. crazy. That's completely crazy. Yeah, but you could put everything, you know, you could do a full task element loadout on it, be completely self-sustained, and go 55 knots anywhere in the world, you know. So it, it certainly had some some potential, mm-hmm. but uh, obviously we never ended up doing them but, or getting them or implementing them. But. So how many deployments did you do before the war kicked off? Just that one. Um, so that was because it took so long. It's twenty-two month workup. Then you did a six-month deployment. Yeah. Then you come back from that. Well, so yeah, the 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 kind of the, the raw deal that uh, I mean, I guess I couldn't call it a raw deal, but for me, so we got back in uh, February of two thousand one, mid February, and uh, because it was right in the middle of Force Twenty One reorg. Oh, that's right. So it was Team Three, their official Force Twenty One form up uh, wasn't until January of 02. So from February to January, the entire team was basically like on pro dev or, or whatever. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I'd only done one platoon. So they're like, yeah, you're not going to free fall yet. Now nah, we got two other guys going to sniper. It's like, you can go to hazmat. That's cool. <laughs> awesome. How about how, you can be a bus driver. Um, so I ended up actually going over to the SISM team. I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh, dang, because you were a swimmer. Navy pentathlon. Yeah. And I, you know, at team three, I was always like when we did run swim runs you know it was one thing being a little smaller at that time and and being a good swimmer and a pretty decent runner i, I could always get top three top five at, at the team on on any given day doing swims and runs and so uh, i went over and tried out and and made the team and and competed and we were supposed to compete in uh, istanbul that summer did the whole you know train for six months and and busted my 
my backside and then uh i pulled i pulled or tore my groin um and uh and i just i I couldn't i couldn't get it healed in time and so i ended up not not being able to go compete which really sucked i was was looking forward to doing it but it was a neat experience though it was Mm -hmm. totally different it was you know the first time in my life and, and the only time it was like being a professional athlete. You know, we'd we'd train for three, four hours in the morning, and then swim for two and a half hours in the afternoon. Do a Saturday long long run or long practice, and that was it. The rest. What of does SISM stand for? Uh, it's. I mean, it's not even in English. I don't think. Um, it's. Uh, yeah. But it's basically like military Olympics, kind of. Yeah, it's the, it's the Navy pentathlon. So it's um, okay. So the 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 events. What are the events? Uh, so it's a uh, an O course, but it's a totally different. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. a real squirrely old course, and it's I don't even small, know if it's still, right? Yeah. Is it small? Yeah, you just it's really fast. Like it's one of the, it's everything. Like a sprint. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. There's um, a like a I don't even know what they call it. It's like a, a naval traditional race thing where you, you're paddling a little boat and you go out around a dinghy and have to do shackles, whatever. Um, What's shackles? Well, like like it's literally like you go around a a buoy and, and have to take a shackle off and connect it to something else oh. like it's so there's a little <coughs> tradition a little stuff. challenge yeah um same thing with the underwater o course which that that one was pretty legit um it's a 125 yard underwater obstacle course uh, and you got those big three foot um carbon fiber free dive fins on so you're mm. doing i mean it's like you're like why couldn't i have these in, in, <laughs> in buds like you're thinking about combat swimmer like i'm gonna steal some of these but uh yeah, I mean, so I'd say ninety percent of that hundred and twenty-five yard race is underwater. You know, you, you only come up at the at the end to blow out and take a breath like a like a damn orca. You know, you're just like psh, psh, you know, and, and go right back. Are you down. doing tasks underwater? Yeah, so there's there's a like a cargo net with a hole at the bottom. You got to you know, and this is over at the CTT in the mm-hmm. fifteen foot section. So you're going from the top down to the bottom, and then back to the top at the other side. And so the only time you're taking a breath is at the end. And I, I will tell you, from a physical standpoint, like that was one of the more taxing things I've ever done uh, because it's a race and it's technique and whatever. But so there's a cargo net you got to go under. You got to swim a, a rubber M16 from one side to the next, holding it out of the water. Uh, but you're, you know, you're basically your whole body's underwater with just the rifle out and you're streamlining and whatever. It's all technique stuff mm-hmm. that you're, you know, whatever. Um, and then you have to go down. You know, you, you go to one side, come back. Uh, so basically, you swim. The M16 across, you drop it, you swim all the way down through that hole, come back up, swim back down, to back to the other side, and undo this little, like, fire hose shackle thing and put it back together, come up, and then sprint back to the other side uh, type of thing. And uh, that, that was pretty pretty challenging. But um, So there's that, and then there's a, a life-saving thing where you got to – uh, do a you know save a dummy basically, mm-hmm. but have to get out of your clothes and and so like you're wearing these old buds greens and you they're all like rigged so that you can get out of them like literally you, you undo the pants uh, you know and, and like it's this old technique thing but you can go from having full greens on in the water taking them off in the water by doing like this porpoise backflip thing and you backflip out of them and and then go save the guy and it's it's really kind of dumb honestly mm-hmm. like it's all <laughs> like I, I feel ridiculous even sitting here explaining it. like it, it sounds even more stupid here explaining it to you guys not knowing what it is but uh um but yeah so so there was some underwater shit going on yeah. that's basically what i'm hearing yeah so so that thing you can't go because you you get injured and yeah. now 
So so shortly after you were supposed to compete, if that was supposed to be in the summer of 2001, mm-hmm. September 11th goes down. Yeah. You, you get rolled back into a platoon at that point? Well, so I, I did a couple of intel schools, some uh, secret squirrel ones that were actually pretty awesome during that summer uh, after I got hurt. Uh, and then I, I literally, in fact, one of them, I, I flew back the night before September 11th. On September 10th, I flew from, from D.C. to San Diego. Um, I get home. September 11th happens. I'm on my – we were living in La Jolla at the time. I was on my way into SEAL Team 3, in a, you know, getting ready to, to jump in a platoon when it happened. And so, obviously, like with everybody, you know, all bets are off and figuring out what we're going to do. There was a, an exercise in Jordan uh, that they sent me on uh, a couple weeks later, uh, and they, they beefed it up pretty heavy. Like, it was going to be a, you know, a minimal footprint, but after mm-hmm. September 11th, they ended up sending way more people and a lot more resources. It kind of set it up almost like a... Um, like a like a potential fob if need mm-hmm. be, you know. They had a couple of platoons worth of guys and and you know people with experience and brought real stuff and you know kind of a contingent if if need be. You know nothing. We didn't end up doing anything, but uh, but we spent actually almost two months over there right after September 11th. It was almost like a mini deployment, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but got back from that, jumped into my platoon in January, and then it was you know full speed ahead like i mean not i know you were the same way it's not that you weren't training for war before mm-hmm. but there was definitely a no there was definitely a difference yeah. yeah and then you 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 deployed you did the you did the oil rigs right i did so you know we're just kind of you know lucky luck of the draw i guess you know we uh we were originally slated to be a um a paycom platoon uh we we're gonna go to guam and and when we did but uh you know so i i actually re-enlisted to, to go to arabic school and uh, at DLI, uh, that was one of my things. I, w- I wanted to learn Arabic, and uh, so they they uh, they were supposed to honor that. And then we got reslated as a paycom platoon. Like, no, you're going to learn Tagalog instead. Congratulations! <laughs> I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, so so I, you speak Tagalog? I wouldn't say I speak you, it. You learned <laughs> it? Yeah, uh, not at DLI. They yeah. so they you know in, in true Navy fashion, it's like. You're not going to Arabic. You're not going to DLI. You're learning Tagalog, and it's going to be at North Island for three months straight. Uh, okay. you know, so uh, it's not the same. Yeah. You know? um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I can carry on a basic conversation with it. But uh, so anyway, we go to go to Guam. This is like October of of '02, and uh, and then you know we we did the the standard PACOM deployment. But towards the end of the year, they basically you know the writing was on the wall like Iraq's going to kick off. So Team Five came and backfilled us, and I, I tell you, I I don't know that they could have been any more pissed. Oh yeah, you know, like our turnover party almost was nine fist fights, you know, like, but they were pretty salty about it. Which I don't blame them, but so they had to come take our place and finish out our PACOM deployment so we could go to to Kuwait. And, wow, and, uh, those yes. guys must have been pissed. Oh, they were beyond pissed. There's there's a feeling that we won't be able to replicate for a long time, which is guys that had never been to war, mm-hmm. the desire that you had to to go, because you think you're only going to get like one mission. Yeah. Everyone at that time, you're yeah. like thinking, if you get to do some kind of real mission, you'll be just completely, your life will be complete. Yeah. And you think if you don't get to do that, mm-hmm. you're never, then opportunity's never going to get there. Yeah. And, and so that's why I can't even imagine what was going through those guys' heads at the time. Yeah, I mean, like I said, they, they had that exact just pit in their stomach, like we're this close and you guys, you know, you've already been here. Like, and, and we, it was kind of the best of both worlds because, you know, we went to the Philippines for a while, which that, that was nice speaking to Gallag there. Mm-hmm. You know, we were there for a month. Um, and then we went to Singapore for a while. We, uh, you know, hit Thailand. I mean, it, it was a good, good PACOM deployment, spent some time in Guam, went to Hawaii and did like a three week exercise <laughs> around Christmas, uh, you know, and then, um, but yeah, so, you know, 
come late January, they're like, you know, f- they fly in all of our desert stuff and, and we're totally repurposing all of our, our crap. And uh, and then, we, yeah, we flew through Thailand, land in Kuwait, set up shop at Kuwaiti Naval Base for about six weeks while we're getting ready. And, and so during that time, the, uh, the oil rig Intel, me being the Intel rep, like I was sourcing Intel from a lot of different sources. Um, and they they weren't very well corroborated. Like some of them, it was kind of like on one end of the spectrum, it was like, yeah, it's not that big a deal. And then on the other one, it was like, dude, this is a suicide mission, you know, and everything in between. And so uh, it was a little little bit uh, nerve wracking uh, because it bounced around a lot. It was like, you know, oh, there's there's nobody on board. And then it's mm-hmm. like, oh, there's four guys, and you know, we saw a couple of AKs and. Next thing you know, it's like, yeah, there's 115 people and they're all suicide vested up and, you know, they're going to clack off when you guys step on, you know, it was just, and it just, like I said, it bounced around. But during that time, like all we did was CQC and, uh, and we built actually a, a full scale mock-up. Now, mind you, this target was 1600 meters long. I mean, it took us seven hours to take it down. And, um, but, you know, SDV did a, a recon on it beforehand. And when you say you did, built a full mock-up, what do you mean? I mean, I say that, I, you know, we didn't have uh, the funds of some of the other units to do that stuff with, but uh, it was basically size-wise, we laid out like... Like with tape? St- like, like we like, normally yeah, do? Like okay. wood, wood stakes Got and, and, Got and twine, you yeah, know, but check. just to know like, hey, this is legitimately how right, long it is right. to give, give you a real idea because, um, you know, so there was birthing at one end and that's where we hit it uh, at the beginning because it was the middle of the night, that's where they all were, and so we took... took uh, it was 32, 32 prisoners um, without without uh, really any any real issue. Um, breached a bunch of doors and, and took down the whole birthing and and then swept the whole rest of the thing from one end to the next. And like I said, it took took all night. But um, so yeah, we did that and and uh, and then came back from that and uh, and then from there. Just it was basically, hey, you know, everybody load up. The war's kicking off. And uh, the, the one thing I will say that was really neat about that mission, though, is that it was the entire team. Mm-hmm. I, I think to this day it's still the largest single in terms of, you know, participants, mm-hmm. special operations mission in, in NSW history is because it was the entire team and the coordination effort because there was a manifold metering station uh, on the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's 26 miles of, of pipeline, uh, that were 48 inch pipes. You know, there was like 30 Exxon LDs worth of, of oil in these, just in the pipelines. And the, and the worry was, and the reason we had to coordinate it was that, you know, the, the manifold metering station, there's people manning that and there's people on the, on the oil rig and all that pipeline. If they blow that, like it's going to destroy the whole Gulf you yeah. know, and, and we'll be the, the 48 inch pipes. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. I mean, you can walk around in them. That's crazy. You know, um, and there was like four of them, you know. So, um, but yeah. So basically, we had to coordinate with, um, and we, and we actually had an SDV platoon with us. Uh, so it was, it was us and, a, and an SDV one platoon uh, that hit the the the. Uh, there was two different oil rigs. There was the uh, the Maybot and Kaot, mm-hmm. the Mina Al Bakr oil terminal, and then the uh, Kor Al Amaya uh, oil terminal. The Kbot one or Kaot. Uh, the the Grom guys took down. There, okay. was, there was nobody on that, and then uh, we took down the the one with you know with all the people on it. But we had to coordinate it, basically time it exact uh, with uh, the other four platoons from Team Three. One of which was a DP DPV platoon mm-hmm. when they were still using. Check. I think that's pro- that's probably the mission where they decided to can the program because yeah. they were terrible. You know, yeah. they all got stuck and it was it was a, <laughs> it was a mess. But. But uh, you know, so they they met some resistance there. You're and just echo that a DPV is like a. Um 
desert patrol. It's a vehicle. desert patrol vehicle, but it it looks like um, a dune buggy, like a dune buggy, and and they and actually looks even super cooler than dune buggy yeah. because they got big like guns. When you're a kid and you see that thing. It's your ultimate fantasy in yeah. life coming true to see yeah. this badass dune buggy with guns, with guns all that. over it, rockets <laughs> on it, and you think, oh, this is. If you would have seen those when you were, yeah. you know, thirteen years old, you'd say, whoever, how, whatever I got to do in my life <laughs> yeah. to drive that thing yeah. is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. The problem was they're they're real specific and finicky and yeah. and they get stuck. Yeah, I mean, they that's get the bottom stuck. line. It's like, uh, I mean, they're worse than Humvees. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so they they took that down and uh, and we and we timed it basically where you know it was a, a simultaneous hit or, or staggered by you know ten seconds, but um, so that you know they what the the worry was that if we took it down too early, then then they would know and, and blow, the, blow pipes the pipes, yeah, and vice versa. So uh, so yeah, we had to had to coordinate it pretty pretty uh, spot on, but but we pulled it off. Um, they managed to uh, take out a few guys on the on the manifold side. Uh, we didn't have any resi- any real resistance. Um, no shots fired other than breaching doors on, on our end. But so we uh, rendezvous back at uh, Kuwaiti Naval Base, and then we jetted up to uh, Ali Asalim Air Force Base mm-hmm. in northern Kuwait, and then spent the next few days just loading four Humvees out. And and, and again, this was the start of the war. We actually only had three. And uh, we ended up, uh, we snaked one from the Air Force. <laughs> and uh, I don't even know if I should say it. I'm going to say it anyway. But uh, there was a green green Humvee that a couple of our guys walked over to a parking lot and stole it <laughs> and uh, brought it brought it over. And we spent one night literally with two cans of tan uh, paint and yep. a paintbrush and just painted it yep. tan. And then uh, these were soft doors. Yep. You know, we had extra crappy body armor that we'd hang in the doors to try to, yep. you know, give us some protection or whatever. And, uh, yeah, we just were like, well, we're, we're loading up. We did have a guy, it was his first platoon, and he was, he kind of lost his, uh, lost his marbles on the, on the hit. Like he was, he was rattled to the point where, you know, he basically gave up and, uh, and hung it up, didn't come with us. Uh, mm. he was a 60 gunner and, uh. So yeah, we had a had an intel guy at the time that was not a team guy that is now um, that jumped in a spot basically. Dang. You talk about like old school like I know they wouldn't they wouldn't let that stuff happen now. It's basically yeah. like here's here's a here's a sixty you know man up yeah sit in the door and <laughs> that's, whatever. But that's that's cool. That's also interesting. You know, people always it's one of those. M- Kind of myths or or misconceptions where people think that everyone that's a seal is like a hundred percent, and there you go, you got a guy that did one yeah. operation and said, "I'm not going any further." I remember, uh, I think there was a couple guys on the West Coast that that turned their birds in after nine eleven. <laughs> you know, they're like, "I I didn't sign up for this." Like, what did you sign up for? Yeah, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, and and there was a couple instances too where uh, you know you'd you'd find out things about guys that just like being a buds instructor um mm-hmm. don't ever count anybody out don't ever bet on anybody you know because <laughs> there, there's people that'll surprise you both ways you know? yeah i but, always feel like somebody was asking me that the other day i always feel like you can you can get an indication right mm-hmm. like you go oh you know what this guy is pretty hardcore yeah you know i i'd go i'd go 80 percent. you know maybe 90 percent mm-hmm. and you think oh this guy's pretty weak i'd go 80 percent, 90 percent but there's, like you said, there's outliers or there's people that you just think, what the what what just happened to that guy? Yeah. And it's another thing I'm had to I'm having to contend with now as I get a little bit older is the fact that even though I'm all about human nature and all this stuff and like I really want to understand people, sometimes I just look at them like I don't literally don't understand what your problem is. Yeah. <laughs> like why would a big one? So there was a there was a navy ship out in front of my house the other day, and uh, I took a picture of it, 
and I sent it to like Leif and JP and and Dave Burke and, and Flynn Cochran and I was like the Navy was good to me but I don't miss these big gray monsters right yeah. and Leif wrote back you know he's like yeah I mean that was my motivation going through buds there's no way and and everyone kind of agreed everyone was like yeah there's no way I was gonna quit buds and go to a ship right. which is not exactly it's well if you have the personality where you think you want to go to buds then yeah. being on a ship is completely the opposite of that personality <clears throat> so I don't understand how a guy could be, you know, get get to a point where they say, you know what, I don't want to be wet cold anymore, which is really all it is. Mm-hmm. You know, people get all excited about SEAL training, but you're wet and you're cold and you're tired. Yeah. Okay, that, that that's 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 not that yeah. big of a deal. The pamphlet is ten percent of the job. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, check. Yeah, so you get some people that I guess they don't really want to do it. Yeah. Everybody wants to be a frogman on a sunny day. Yeah, that's that's another uh, good saying. Yeah. So, so you guys pushed up into Iraq. Yeah, so we we rolled up, and, and the neat thing at the time was uh, was Mattis was the was the you know he was the the boss of uh, one Mardiv at the time. So we rolled up with the First Marine Division, linked up with the yes. with the thirteenth or fifteenth Mu mm-hmm. in Nazaria. They had taken some some heavies. Yeah, yeah Nazaria was a big fight, and uh, and so. The, the the word that we got, and I mean, again, you'd have to talk to to Harwood and, and uh, Mattis if that's how it went down. But basically, we got Mattis called Harwood and was like, "Hey, you know, some of our supply routes and, and convoys have been getting it handed to them, in in some some routes in Nazareth. Will you guys go ambush the ambushers?" And like, hell yeah, we will. You know, so uh, it was like the wet dream of of uh, of what you would think you're getting yourself into combat wise in terms of it was you know hey our conventional guys are getting getting it taken to them here is your your grid square basically uh it's it's your territory let us know what we can do to help you guys have at it and uh we had some leadership at the time that uh was not that crazy about cutting us off lead you know and uh so we battled it out with them and, and came up with some creative ways to go out and work anyway but um, but we just, you know, we went out and, and did like old school, you know, conducting our own everything, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we gather our own intelligence. We, you know, grabbed a few guys and, and asked around and, and, uh, you know, did, did several hits based on the intelligence that we'd gathered and, and, uh, had air support. And it was kind of like a little microcosm of what was to come, you know, nice. um, was that the first time you saw dogs in action? No. no okay. No, it wasn't until after that, and and it wasn't even seeing them; it was mm-hmm. hearing about them, uh, which I'll get to in a, in a second, I guess. But uh, so the Nazaria thing, we were there for for a few weeks, uh, just doing our own doing our own thing, basically. Um, then we went up to uh, southern Baghdad, uh, just south of Baghdad, and we're there for just a couple of days. Then we were in northern Baghdad. We hit a Scud base, mm. which was cool. Um, you know, took a, a Scud base down and and. Uh, Got got some pretty neat photos and experiences from uh, from that, but uh, took down the scud base. Yeah. Got cool pics. Yeah. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah, some, uh, yeah. I mean, got the t-shirt. Um, so uh, so after that, then we went up to to Crete, you know. And, and so this was, you know, again, this was during the conventional phase. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of to me the unique part about that was was kind of the best of both worlds. And it was like having box seats at a at a historic combat yeah. scene in terms of big conventional forces moving through you know there were there were lines you know everything um and so you know i don't, I don't know if you remember the i think it was a third id was supposed to come down through turkey and in the last minute they said no yep. you're not doing it so everything you know was supposed to be 
meeting like that in, in Baghdad with the mm-hmm. you know the army and the marines meeting s- south to north squeezing Baghdad and and it didn't happen um, you know last minute when they said no you can't run through here so it was just you know the marines moving south to north and and uh, so we there was a couple times where we'd go ahead of them and, and scout out some routes and, and uh, got into a little bit of trouble a few times. Um, and then as we're coming up, you know, to Crete and, and Mosul and, uh, you know, Talifar and, and uh, you know, some of the Kurd, Kurd areas up there, they weren't real worried about. To Crete was kind of the last big one that they were worried about being a last stand because it was Saddam's hometown or yeah. whatever. And so the entire 1st Marine Division and SEAL Team 3 Echo Platoon uh, took down to Crete. And uh, it was funny because they're like, you know, um, you know, first first division has the west. You know, second's got the north. Third's got the south. And Team Three Echo Platoon, you guys are taking east. Like, you know, there's 16 of us. It's soft, soft skinned Humvees, right? Oh, that's yeah, awesome. whatever. So we got it. Yeah, we went. We went uh, skirted skirted through town while while the entire town of you know 25,000 Marines were taking down to Crete. We're sneaking our way up to uh, up to the the palace, and we we took the palace down, which was pretty pretty neat. Um, and stayed there for for a little while, uh, and then ended up once we left there, we kind of bounced around, went down back down to Baghdad, and flew out. But but uh, so while I was in Tikrit, uh, that's where you know we had been in in scenarios where the the gist of it was that there was a group of Marines that had um, a dog with them, and there was a and one of the the way I described it in the book was you know again I was hearing. You know, these guys are getting ready. There's a little opening, like a kind of a cave complex style mm-hmm. opening in the side of a, of a hill. And they had a, a single purpose bomb dog with them. Again, from this is all just what I heard. Um, and there was a, um, a a grenade booby trap, basically, a, a clump of grenades just inside the doorway that um, that uh, this dog had alerted on. You know, and for me, that was like the slap in the face light switch moment of like, why why do we not have dogs? And I had grown up in Iowa with bird dogs. I got into hog dogs for a number of years after, which I'll, I'll get into the kind of what I drew from that in terms of heart intensity, conditioning, training, nutrition, breeding theory, stuff like that. But, um, but you know, I, I'd spent a number of years prior to that dealing with dogs, working with them, training them, stuff like that, but never, you know, this focused and strategic about it, calculated. And so for me, it was just from that day on back in March of 03 up until as I sit here, it was just like I couldn't get enough of it, you know. Um, and I had taken a lot of the lessons I'd learned from training and, and breeding and working with dogs uh, in, a, in a more informal capacity uh, and applied a lot of that stuff to, uh, to what, what I had, had uh, started implementing with, uh, with the canine programs and stuff. And so for, for that first five years, it was just kind of, you know, a student. I mean, I'm still a student, mm-hmm. but... Um, but it was just, you know, training with whoever I could train with. I'd, I would import dogs. I would, you know, go to clubs. I'd, you know, try to work with police departments. Anybody I could work with, I, I would do it. I'd read every book I could, watch videos, went to seminars, you name it. And, uh, and then as I transitioned to get ready to get out after I got, uh, you know, I, I came back, was an instructor for a little while, got valley fever and lost, you know, 40% of my lungs. And, and then, uh, as I was getting ready to get out, I, I could either stay in and be a handler on the West Coast or uh, start my own company and, and, you know, provide dogs training, handler courses, and, and make a bigger impact. And for me, that was 
I'd so say you just kind of breeze through the fact that you got valley fever as <laughs> yeah. an instructor and lost forty percent. And lost forty percent of your lung, and it kills some people. And that's that was obviously a huge piece of you saying because if you would have stayed in, you 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 weren't allowed to do anything that had any kind of lung irritants. Was the deal? Yeah. So uh, so this was you know I, I came back and 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 went right into being an instructor. I, I had planned on you know forwarding on to to bigger and better things uh operationally and um you know it, it i was out at nyland uh and i all of a sudden just like any of us after you shoot a uh, an at4 or a, or a gustav round more than a couple of them your chest a little tight the next mm-hmm. day well, I, I was you know the rso during 55 of them being <laughs> shot you know and so Naturally, like, yeah, my chest is tight. And that shouldn't be legal, by no, the way, no, no. as we found out. So just so anyone knows, uh, uh, a Carl Gustav or an 84, but especially a Carl Gustav, it's yeah. the biggest boom. You're shooting a 84-millimeter yeah. rocket. And if you shoot two of them or three of them in a day, it's it's like you got punched in the head oh, yeah. a bunch. But the problem is our instructor staff goes out there and they sit there and do, what'd you say, 55 and 55 in one day. That's not healthy, bro. Oh, I know. That is not healthy. Yeah. And it was one of those things like, well, you're not shooting them. You're just standing there. So it doesn't count. It's like, okay, (laughs) you know, uh, typical military genius, you know, but, uh, so the next day, you know, I expected my chest and, and lungs and head and everything to be a little, a little sore than normal. Um, but it got worse, uh, and it got to the point where three or four days after that, it, it was like, it was debilitating. You know, it felt like you were standing on my chest, especially when I laid down, it got worse. And so finally they said, you know, Hey, you need to go to Balboa and, and, uh, hit the, hit the ER and see what the hell's going on. And so I went and, uh, it took, you know, based on, and I, I can't blame Balboa, like based on what I told them, naturally they're assuming blast lung, you know, type, type of issues, you know, some sort of you know, uh, explosive type of damage. Um, but it wasn't, you know, what that did is it exacerbated what, what had already started, which was me having breathed in coccidia mycosis, which is a microscopic, uh, fungus that lives in, in arid climates and it spreads through your lungs like mold, uh, where it gets dangerous and kills people is, um, is two things. One, your genetic makeup, you're predisposed to determine, you know, how, how uh, big of an impact it has. The other one is how much you're exposed to and, and how long it goes untreated. So um, I basically, it, it grows through your, your lungs like mold and, and spreads, but if it, if it goes past that, if it disseminates past your lungs, then it goes into your, into your blood, into your organs, into your bone, uh, and then ultimately it'll get into your your CSF fluid or cerebral spinal fluid and into your spinal cord and go up into your brain and, and that's when it kills people. And so it's, it's kind of like encephalitis that way. Mm-hmm. But, um, so mine had, had disseminated past my lungs. There was a couple of hot spots in my, in my chest, in my sternum and, and, uh, in my chest bone ribs and whatever. Um, and so when they caught it, they, uh, they prescribed Lamisil, which, uh, is a toenail fungus medication, but, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Diflucan. But it's it's a lot harsher than than um, Lamisil, it's fluconazole, and so they. Long story short, I was on twenty eight times the amount that you would be prescribed for for a bad case of toenail fungus, and uh, I got down. So here's the the irony: I had gotten up to two hundred pounds uh, prior to that, uh, and then I got back down. I weighed, weighed one hundred and forty pounds uh, at the end of it. I was on convalescent leave for eight months. Uh, at the time, my my chief was Ty Woods, um, you know, from Benghazi. God rest his soul, awesome dude. But uh, so I was working for him at the time, and and he, you know, just couldn't have been better. I mean, he he checked on me, came by the house regularly. I mean, 
um, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't do anything. Like I slept 20 hours a day. It was like having pneumonia and mono at the same time, lost a ton of weight, um, got down to about 140. Finally, they had, they had gotten the, um, the disease under control and got it to, uh, to, uh, recede, but it, it lays in your bloodstream like malaria does or whatever it, it lays dormant. So if I got pneumonia or uh, leukemia or HIV or cancer, something that really immunosuppressed me, it, it could come back. Uh, and so that's, it's always there. You always have antibodies there. But, uh, so, uh, at the end of that, the infectious disease captain at Balboa sat me down. He's like, you know, um, I, I would recommend a, a medical retirement for you right now. And, and he said, if you want to go that route, I'm not saying you have to, but, uh, but that's what I, I recommend. And, and, uh, you know, basically let me know what you want to do. And I was like, man, I, you know, I've got a, a child on my first child on the way. I have no college degree. I, I had, he's totally caught me off guard. Like I have no plan, you know? Um, and so I said, well, you know, how, how can I stay in? You know, he said, well, you got to stay away from, from lung irritants for a few years. Honestly, he's like to make as good a recovery as you're going to make, you've got to slowly get back into shape and put weight on you got to take really good care of your lungs i mean stay away from harsh cleaning products smoke you know dust everything which is basically everything you do as a seal yeah i mean everything that you do you're cleaning yeah. stuff you're blowing stuff up you're setting stuff on fire you're shooting guns with lead and it's just yeah, a it's disaster a for your lungs yeah and so you know really the only potentially logical explan or, uh, you know choice was to go over to uh, to the center as a basic you know buds instructor and so uh, bro the the master chief that was that I was working for at the time uh, you know can't can't say enough good things about him he uh, hooked me up and, and made a deal with the with the training master chief and they sent me over there and I spent you know three years there which you know was an amazing experience too, and and I honestly I, I've drawn a lot of lessons uh, from being an instructor to both life and to training dogs, which I know we'll get into. But um, you know, so it was it was neat to be behind the curtain there for a little while um, and see see what the wizard saw, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but you know, then when I like I said I as I was there, I started. Uh, that's when the West Coast Canine program was was coming up online. Oh seven oh eight time frame. Um, and uh, and I went and did uh, did some decoy training with some of their guys uh, up up at a vendor they were using up in Cal uh, Central California, and it was almost kind of like a working interview, basically. If hey, is this something you want to get involved with? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And and so they, so basically, I was at a crossroads. They said, you know, if if you want to reenlist and whatever, you know, you can come come be a handler here, um, you know, or, or that's it, you know. And uh, I thought about it for a while, and and for me, you know, it's one of those forks in the road that there isn't a right answer you know i wouldn't be where i'm at today uh but i'd be i'd be lying to you if i said there isn't part of me that wishes i i had stayed in i'd still be in doing deployments as a handler i'm i'm sure you know so um but for me again just kind of back to like when i first joined the navy i've always looked at it as how can i make a bigger impact not not what do i want most personally mm -hmm. but what what's going to make uh, more of an impact in terms of of the industry and, and helping more people and to me, it just made sense if I can sell, you know, lots of dogs and, and provide handler training and run courses and, and source nice dogs to feed the program and all that, then then that makes more sense from a big picture standpoint. Did you ever get connected with any of the Vietnam era dog handlers? I did. Uh, a team guy, actually. Yeah. Like, uh, Do you ever hear stories about Prince? Prince. Oh yeah, so Prince was like the the uh, I, I believe was the most successfully used dog in Vietnam by the SEALs. It was oh, really? a dog named Prince. I 
I heard stories when I first got in about Prince, and one of the stories that I heard, and again, this is a story of, it's an oral tradition that's been passed down, but the story was that there was guys that were getting extracted on a helicopter, and that they, they all piled, it was a hot extract, they, all the guys pile into the bird, and they've got Prince, the dog, with them, and the guy says, uh, you know, hey, we're too heavy to take off. Somebody's got to get out and this is the air crewman looks at you know looks at, looks at the chief and says hey We're too heavy to take off somebody's got to get out and Looks at the guy and looks at Prince like get the dog out of here We got to take off and the story goes that the handler seal handler like put his hand on on the dog and was like none of us are going anywhere and they had to just crank the engines and you know barely be able to take off but that was the that was the the story that I heard about, and there's pictures of Prince you can see in yeah. the archives. So I was just wondering if you ever talked to any of the guys that were any of the Prince handlers. Uh, not not that I'm aware of. There's there's a guy, and and you know I, I actually never talked to him about what his dog's name was. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if it was him, he probably would have told me. But there was one, I think he was the first Vietnam SEAL canine handler that I talked to right as my first book came out, uh, and sent him a, a signed copy and and. Uh, you know, talk to him a little bit as it as, as it was coming out, which was for me just a, it was an awesome experience. Yeah. You know, like hearing this guy talk, like it was basically like here's a dog, figure it out. You yeah. know, I mean that's about the gist of it. Like, Apparently, they had some hard times. The first, they, they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, and it took a couple deployments oh, yeah. of before they figured out. Okay, and they got the dog prints up to speed, and yeah. apparently he saved a, a bunch of guys over time. Yeah, I mean he he had some pretty interesting things to say about the program and the efficacy of the dogs back then, and and yeah, I mean a lot of it was them just kind of working their way through it, and that's the thing that that I think most people. Um, there's probably the biggest misrepresentation of of canine programs is that it's not a weapon system, you know, where it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, you're Mark one motto team guy, like you'll figure it out. Like it's a totally different animal. No pun intended. It it is. I mean, like, you know, the, the podcast you did with, uh, with the sacks, right. When he's talking about horses, it takes 10 years. Like it's, it's that way with dogs. It really is. I mean, because it's, it's a totally different deal. Uh, it takes years to get truly, you know, I would say to, to to be able to master, you know, what it takes to to implement a dog program. It, it's it's akin to flipping on a uh, another detachment, you know, or saying, hey, we're going to create a, a female special forces unit. Like it's going to take a long time before mm-hmm. that that's up and running. And dog programs are very similar that way. So it's hard enough when you've got training cadre, resources, you know, budgeting, billeting, all that stuff in your favor. It still takes several years, you know, to just say, here's a dog, figure it out, like. I mean, that, that's a that's a tough pill to swallow. You yeah. know, those guys did it. You know, just like just like any of us would. You know, well, we'll figure it out. But well, all right, let's 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 get into the book a little bit because I think that'll just guide us. Because um, yeah. I had a great time reading this book. Um, as you know, I have a dog as well, which it's is a man, man biter. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but the book that I decided to go with. You got three books out. Obviously, the 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 SEAL Team Dog is a book more. It's a what they call in the in the literary industry. It's a YA book for yeah. young adults, right? That's what it is. But yeah, it's it's actually Navy SEAL Dogs is the young adult adaptation of Trident Canine right, Warriors. Right. So it's the same same story. same book. So yeah. don't buy that one if you're an adult. Don't get both of them. Yeah, don't get both of them. Yeah. But then this book, Team Dog. How to Train Your Dog the Navy SEAL Way, and what the reason? And you, as soon as I, as soon as you got here today, you're like. You know, I just got listened to the last podcast with DeSax, and there's so many parallels. You'd be surprised. And I was like, 
Okay. He's like, are we going to talk about that? I'm like, of course we are. Because that's there's so many parallels yeah. between how you lead a dog mm-hmm. and how you lead a human. Yeah. As awful as that might sound, it's absolutely true. Oh, 100%. Uh, w- one of the things you kick off here, and, and I, I kind of skip to the middle of the book because it's talking about selection. So I'm going to go to the book here. Selection is crucial. I can't emphasize this point enough. In most cases, when I've been asked to intervene in problem dog situations, what I instantly see is a mismatch, such as either a slightly built person or an elderly couple who have a 75-pound high-energy dog who they can't walk without being dragged along. Those people are physically incapable of exerting enough force to stop that dog from moving, a necessary first step in getting a dog to walk properly on a leash. That's just one example of how better selection could have resulted in a better relationship. And again, you, that's a real obvious one. That's one of the easiest ones to understand. Oh, I'm a small old woman mm-hmm. and I can't get a hundred pound dog to drag me around. But there's a lot of a lot of other characteristics that are way more nuanced. For instance, a dog that is super high energy and you're a working person that's busy all the time and you got to work when you're home and you're going to have that dog nipping at you all the time. Play with me, play with me, play with me, play with me. That's not going to be a good match. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be a good match at all. Um, and and you see, well, you were quoting some of the quotes uh, about, I mean, tell me a little bit about dog ownership in America right now because I think a lot of it, selection, has a lot to do with where we end up with problems. So there's two things, really. I mean, dog ownership as a whole is uh, it's a goat rope, honestly. And, and that's where this book stems from. That's where my, my team dog online training program stems from. And frankly, the, the campaign that, that uh, I'm about to launch that, that is, in essence, the crux of the problem with, uh, with dog ownership in this country is that it's, it's mismatched. Uh, poor selection, and and most importantly, it's just uh, an inability to communicate properly with the dog. Uh, and 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 what that stems from is very simply is that you know dogs' minds. Um, they, if if you think about it from from the most basic standpoint, you can is that you know you you and I, we're we're having this conversation verbally, right? You you dream in a language, you talk in a language, you think in a language. Uh, we communicate overwhelmingly verbally. Now, when you think about about dogs is that just something as simple as, as you and I meeting. Uh, if, if I come over and I shake your hand and we smile and nod, I you know touch your shoulder, whatever, walk away, if somebody can see that from across the parking lot and know, yeah, it was a cordial, cordial greeting. You and I stand up next to each other and we're looking at each other like this and, and doing this kind of stuff and sizing each other up and turn around. Again, from across the parking lot, you know those two d- dudes are about to brawl. Now, if it's that easy for us as human beings who are overwhelmingly verbal in how we communicate to, to pick that thing up, now imagine a dog who's never thought in a language, uh, who doesn't dream in a language, doesn't communicate in a language. Now, now think about how important body language and nonverbal verbal communication skills are. It's everything to a dog. And so their, their mind uh, is an algorithm. It, it works like a calculator. It doesn't work like, like our minds. And that's, that's the biggest single crucial element where people make the mistakes is they anthropomorphize and they attach all these human associations, emotions, logic, and reasoning to a dog's brain, and it doesn't work that way. You know, the, the A plus B equals C, you know, the scientific jargon is antecedent plus behavior equals consequence. But just think of it like a calculator is that grabbing the leash plus putting it on, you know, grabbing the leash A plus putting it on B equals we go for a walk C. When A plus B is paired enough times to where dog anticipates C, that's when you have problems. How many people have you seen 
you know, that have a dog that they grab the leash and he's just, you know, spinning around the moon and, and they can't even get a leash on him to take him for a walk, let alone settle down. That's why is because every single time you've paired A plus B, it's equaled C. And now he's anticipating when A and he's anticipating C when A and B are present. So something as simple as breaking that context gets rid of that. You know, a lot of people, let's put a prong collar on, let's put an e-collar, let's knee him in the ribs, let's manhandle him, all these things. All you have to do is break that context, you know, and, and it's really that simple is that whether you're trying to build it or whether you're trying to break it, the process is the exact same. You're either going to make A plus B equal C enough times to where you want them to anticipate mm -hmm. it, or if C is something you don't want anticipated, you're going to make A plus B not equal it. So with the leash example, it's I go grab the leash, I click it, I wrap it around my waist, I go sit down on the couch with it. And now the dog's looking at you like his mind's blown. He's like, what the hell is going on? We're, we're supposed to be walking right now. And then I get up, I put it back, and I go sit down and go about my day. You do that enough times, and now when you grab the leash, it doesn't mean anything to him. Uh, so just as one simple example, if you think about all of these different behaviors that we as human beings inadvertently create uh, in the animal, that, that is why. It's, a, it's a, a lack of that understanding that their mind just works differently than ours. As soon as you understand that, coupled with presence, you know, I know you, you have to speak about this in, in, your, in your business leadership uh, conferences and in, in how you carry yourself, how you interact with people is huge, you know, and if it's, again, if it's that big with people, I mean, you know, you're the type of guy that, you know, you walk into a room, people are like, this dude's running, running the show, right? Um, a lot of people, you know, that we've worked with or worked for are like that, just command respect by the way they carry themselves, by the way they walk in. And if it's, again, if it's that effective just with us as human beings who aren't driven that way primarily, now imagine a dog. Like, uh, I do exercises with dogs all the times where I don't say a word to them. It'll be the first time I've ever seen a dog. I'll put a, a three-foot leash on them in a room with basically nothing in it. And this is a dog that, you know, they've had all these problems with. It's a nine-month-old, crazy high-energy dog. Um, I, I did it just the other day, actually, on the, on the trip I was on before this. This training facility was having trouble with this dog, and they wanted to go to, to using some some compulsion methods, some some prong collar and e collar stuff to, to get the dog under control. I said, let me let me mess with them for a minute. And so I I connect the leash to him. I, I walk around with him, and I just you know tugging on the leash and, and feeling him. You know, getting a feel for his personality. But you know, if you think of it like a like a bumper or a, a, a buffer, is that you're you're the buffer between that dog, his mind, and 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 the stimuli. And everything that, that goes between it, you're almost the gatekeeper. Uh, and so when you, you have to get inside that dog's mind and, and be able to reach it first, you know, which, which means I have to mirror what I want out of the dog. If, if he's a spaz, I can't treat him like a spaz. I can't spaz out and yank him and yell at him and, and get all, all up in his grill about it. I need to throttle it down and, and, and be a mirror uh, or a representation, a physical representation of what I want out of him. And so it got to the point where... He, I finally got him to just relax, lay down, and I could get up and walk around the room, and he, and he wouldn't move. And he had not done that before. And it's not, it's not anything crazy, magic, wizard stuff. It, it, it's just it's a basic understanding of, of canine psychology, operant conditioning, uh, and the four quadrants. Uh, but, but most importantly, it's, it's that nonverbal communication aspect that, uh, that with dogs is just imperative. Um, when you uh, – another thing that – before we move on past selection or we get a little bit more, but a lot of times people figure they want certain breed of dog, right? And I had a great conversation with you when I was getting a dog uh, a while back and you were like, look, you could have a great dog that's a mutt, you could have a great dog that's a purebred, whatever, you name it. You could have a 
horrible dog that's a mutt and you can have a horrible dog that's a purebred whatever you want to name it or whatever mm-hmm. that breed is yeah. it, well, there's the, the the breed that you get obviously you got to look at how big it's going to be and what t- kind of temperament but the temperament thing how how well is that temperament thing and how much how much impact does the does the breed and the temperament align so i would say that there's there's basically two categories. There's the working varieties and the non-working varieties. When it comes to non-working varieties, in other words, your average domesticated house pet, honestly, it's it's a paint job, in in my opinion. You know, uh, breed really is. What do you like? What do you like? What 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 does it look like? And, and what do you like? Uh, it's purely aesthetic, or almost that way, uh, because they are bred for aesthetics. They're not bred for working working traits. Now, when you're talking about Malinois, shepherds. Catahoulas, coon dogs, you know, terrier types, rat terriers, patterdales, whatever, uh, any type of dog that is bred purposefully. Now it, it is a different ball game. Now I would say that you know most Malinois, as an example, uh, you know, do have a higher level of energy, a higher drive. That doesn't necessarily translate to good drive. You know, a lot of people make the the mis, misconception uh, that oh my dog has tons of energy. He just needs a job. He needs to work, and and he'd be a great working dog. Not necessarily. You know, it could be nervous energy. It could be anxiousness uh, could be thin environmental nerves there's a, a lot of different reasons but back to your your question is that from a selection standpoint you know the if you're talking about any breed that you're just getting that's an AKC dog or or even a shelter dog or whatever that's that's not bred from three four or five generations of lineage that's that's been selected because it brings certain working traits to the table it's a good dog is where you find it you know uh, it really is. I mean, it's, it's what are the parents like if it's out of a shelter? Just go evaluate the dog with the same tips that, that I gave you, yeah. honestly. And, and I do that. I don't care where the dog's coming from. It could be the best bred dog from the, the, the most pipe hitterish parents I've ever come across. I'm still going to evaluate that dog with, with uh, zero kennel blindedness, uh, with no bias whatsoever. I don't care if it's a friend of mine. I don't care if it's puppies I raised. I, I wash out puppies that I, I breed and raise all the time because they're just not what I need. And that's from a selection standpoint to, to tie in the, the SEAL teams and having been an instructor. The, the reason I think that, not I think, the reason that, that the caliber of individual that shows up at a SEAL team is, is so high is because BUDS is such a tough selection process. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I asked it the other day, like, people ask me, what, you know, did you learn how to deal with stress? Did you learn in BUDS? And I'm like, no, you don't actually learn that. You just, if you can't, you go away. Yeah. They don't, there's not a class where they say, okay, when you start feeling stressed, here's what you do. Or when you start feeling like you can't go any further, we want you to repeat this mantra. No, no they don't do that. They just put you in crappy situations. And if you want to quit, you quit. Mm-hmm. There's no education there. The only, I, th- I think the only education that exists is you learn who you are. Yeah, that's that's you know? a good point. Yeah, I mean, but no one teaches you. No, I mean no, it's the. I guess I guess the the environment is what teaches sure. you that. Yeah. The, another good thing you wrote in here, uh, and you just talked about a little bit. Dogs are meant to be active, and are happiest when they're doing something. And the reason I highlighted that was because it's the same thing with people. It's the same thing I've been talking about with Joe Rogan. It's the same thing I've been talking about with Jordan Peterson. You know, with Joe Rogan, we were saying that, you know, you need some kind of a struggle to make you feel like you're accomplishing something. With Jordan Peterson, it's, you know, we talk about how if you take up the burden of responsibility, that's what gives you a purpose. And so for dogs, if you're just going to let your dog run around and do whatever he wants, well, he's not really going to be happy. Is that the point? It is. And and here's, a, I would say, a classic example of, of us as humans uh, anthropomorphizing certain elements to dogs. By that, I mean that we, we look at it as a job, as purpose, right? 
again, this is my opinion. I'm not uh, a world-renowned uh, canine psychologist, but but I play one on TV. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the the fact is is that you know dogs. I don't think have that that depth of understanding of purpose. They have what I would I would classify it as you know like a five year old is they have a need to be stimulated physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, nutritionally, everything just like we as human beings. And where you see problems, and I see it all the time with with my online dog training is that you know when people first start out that it's it's kind of a reeducation of sorts of of saying you know number one you got to put yourself in the dog shoes and I'm going to help you doing it by structuring these these monthly lessons so that they're cumulative so that you you can understand and watch your dog transform and, and learn from it but what it is is that it, it's it's making an understanding is just like with people is that you know that dog needs to have physical exercise as part of his daily regimen he needs to have routine so that so that he can count on you and and, and depend on you for providing the resources that, that necessitates his life he's got to have uh, mental stimulation just like we do i mean you can do nothing but work out but think about the difference between a gym workout and a jujitsu role in terms of what it does for your mind mm -hmm. like it's night and day difference and so you can't just go make your dog blow his physical wad every day playing ball like you you've got to make his mind work and that's where using a, a clicker to reinforce and shape uh, behaviors comes into play because now they have to think they have to figure things out uh, and it is, it's, it's, it's mentally exhausting or at a minimum stimulating and, and they require that. Uh, same with food, same with sunlight, you know, is that if, imagine you sit in here, you know, 23 hours a day or, or you don't go outside, you don't roll, you eat beef jerky and canned goods or McDonald's, um, you know, do that week after week after week, where are you going to be, you know, mm -hmm. across the board, physically, mentally, health-wise, immune system, everything's going to be garbage. And so what, what happens is a lot of these people, they, they think they're, you know, spoiling their dog. I don't know when that became a, a positive thing, uh, but, um, but, you know, they think that, you know, by not making him do things, not teaching him things, not enforcing things, not having a, a routine in which that dog can depend on, um, not stimulating his mind, not making sure that he's physically active and keeping him in good shape, that those are all benefits and they're not. Uh, they're detriments, you know. N needless to say, this applies directly to your kids and how you raise your kids. Just everything you just rattled off yeah. is basically how you end up with spoiled kids that are lazy yeah. and unproductive in their lives. 100%. You know and, and by the way, lazy, unproductive, and unhappy because yeah. they're not going to be happy when they're a loser sitting yeah. around playing video games you know, 23 hours a day yeah. covered in Cheeto dust. That's my favorite. The, you know, one of the things that I think that uh, is, is really interesting to me of, of how dog training kind of relates to life is that it's – it's, it's like a, a petri dish or, or almost a, a microcosm of life is that no different than whether it's business, relationship goals, leadership, uh, a coach with his athletes, a teacher with students, a parent with their kids, you name it, uh, but, you know, a, a general with his troops is that you have to have an objective. You got to know what, how do I want my dog? You know, what does a finished dog look like? You got to know in your mind, what is that? Just like if you want to be a black belt in jujitsu, you want to own a $10 million company. Whatever it is, if you don't know where you want to go, you're not going to steer it anywhere. You're going to be floating around. Uh, so you got to know that first. Then you got to be honest with yourself in terms of doing an evaluation. Where am I? Okay, now I know where I want to be. I know where I'm at. Now it's formulating a plan, and then you schedule it and execute it, just like every other aspect of your life. There, there is honestly no difference. The neat thing about dog training is that you know you can go through that process dozens of times you know as a dog trainer especially but even if you just have a dog that that it's a condensed process that's that's in a such a controlled environment you see the cause and effect you see that the criteria driven 
algorithmic process that exists in all of life, but it plays out and you're, you're manipulating it, you're controlling mm -hmm. it, you're, you're directly influencing every aspect of it. And so uh, I've, I've learned more about people by training dogs than I would have ever imagined, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's mind numbing almost how much you can, you can learn from training dogs and, and how to interact with people based on, on all of that. You know, it, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty fascinating, I think. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I, I got that all out of this book too. Uh, going on to what you talked about a little bit, but just to clarify what you specifically wrote in the book here. You talk about meeting a dog. Before we get into the specifics of that process, I want to take a moment to turn this discussion around again and focus on you and not the dog. If a dog is looking for someone to take charge and exert authority over him in order to not burden him with that responsibility, then you need to carry yourself a certain way. I go back to something I said in the introduction about wanting to be respected over being liked. Think about the kinds of introductions and greetings you've had with people and a variety of ways in which they've interacted with you. How would you respond if you met someone for the first time and they rushed up to you, hugged you, tussled your hair, jumped up and down, and generally acted like you were the greatest person on the face of the earth? Wouldn't you think that, or would you think that person's assessment of you was valid? Would you like that kind of physical contact? Would you think that this was a great starting point for a long-term relationship? Would you have respect for that person? And then you get to this point where you say, what kind of dog is going to be attracted to that kind of greeting and that message? And the answer is a needy dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an incredible point. Yeah. You know, do you really want, you know, let's say you're hiring an employee. And the employee, you can tell, just needs a lot of encouragement, even though they're all fired up. But the more you fire them up, the more fired up they get. Well, is that the person you really want to have that's going to take you there to emotionally prod them along to get them where you want to go? The answer is obviously no. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the most common uh, kind of scenario analogies that I, I throw at people when because, you know, I do a lot of speaking and, and uh, events and conferences and whatever and. Um, you know, one of the almost always offline people are like, oh, my dog, I need to send him to him. Like, that's not going to fix it. You know, no different than you send me your kids. Like, they're going to work well for me. They're not going to work well for you because you're not you're not doing it. Uh, but but think of it from a perspective uh, from a boardroom is that, you know, when they say oh, my dog doesn't respect me, there's two things. There's a, a big difference between respecting and and, uh, and enjoying or liking. So the first first example I use is the, you know, being at a bar um, and I'll I'll save the 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 heavy details but the gist of it is that if if the opposite sex is throwing themselves at you do you like that well yeah do you enjoy it absolutely do you respect that person no you know so you can spoil your dog you can let him sleep i let him sleep in my bed i take him for walks i give him treats i take him to acupuncture and he just he doesn't listen to me like i bet your kids don't either uh, and, and that's why because it's it's the it's the 19 year old at the bar that's trying to flatter you that it, it doesn't uh, it's enjoyable but it doesn't doesn't garner respect the second thing on a more serious note is um, think of a boardroom, and, and I use this because I talk with a lot of business folks and, and things uh, at different events, and uh, let's say that you're tasked with going in front of the, the 12 executives of the company you work for, uh, and, and you know, your boss says, hey, you're going to give a PowerPoint presentation, and your job depends on this. If you knock it out of the park, you're getting a promotion, you're going to be an executive. If it doesn't go that well, well, you're going to pack your stuff and find, find employment elsewhere. Now, I want you to think about how you go into that boardroom, right? And I want you to think about, visualize in your mind, interacting with those 12 executives the way that you interact with your dog. How would that, how would that presentation go? You know, every one of them, oh, I'd get laughed out of the room. 
That's why your dog doesn't listen to you. Because your dog, you, you can tell your dog that you're his owner all you want. You have to show him that. If he doesn't believe you because you haven't shown him that, guess what? You're not. You can think about it. You, you can wish that you were. You can hope that you were. Uh, the fact is is that uh, your dog is, is going to believe who you show him that you are. Uh, and if that's a clown, guess what? He thinks you're a clown. <laughs> if you're an emotionally instable, you know, J.A., uh, that's, how, that's how he's going to view you. Uh, yeah. If you're a beta male because you're rolling around and letting him, you know, uh, do whatever he wants to you, that he's going to view you as such. You know, and, and the most dangerous combination, because a lot of times you, you hear the word dominance get thrown around, alpha, all this other stuff. I can tell you I can count on one hand the amount of dogs that I've come across that were truly what I would consider an, an alpha dog. And this is a dog that even with all my experience, all of the manipulations I can provide in terms of, of setting the environment up to, to make it so that I'll, I'll, you know, impact him that way, he still wants to fight me over everything no matter what I do. And I can't get in his head no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do physically, mentally, environmental manipulation, you name it, less than five. Uh, what, this what is it, out of thousands of thousands dogs? Of thousands of dogs, yeah, thousands less than of five dogs. that actually need to be the alpha male over you with everything yeah. that you know how to do yeah. to get in their heads. Yeah, that, that no matter what you do with them, that they still look at, at, at everybody like you're, you're below me, uh, <laughs> the, a handful of them, you know, less than a handful of them. Uh, and so when I hear, especially pet owners, like, oh, he's really alpha, he's really protective. No, he's not. Uh, what it is you're is just weak. There's a power <laughs> vacuum. Yeah. And, and so, you know, dogs, again, they don't rationalize. They don't have the logic and reasoning we have. They, be, they, they come hardwired with a set of genetically inherited traits that say if there is no nothing in charge, if there's a vacuum, whether I want to do it or not, I'm going to because somebody has to. Mm-hmm. And so when you see all of these dogs that are dangerous and, and guarding of food and, and territorial and all this other stuff, you have a dog that doesn't want to be in charge but is taking that role because nobody else will. And that is a re- absolute recipe for disaster. And that's why you see so many problems with, with dogs and their owners is, is because of that simple fact in and of itself. Yeah. You're talking, you know, again, we're talking about all these similarities. Here's, here's the thing you got in the book. Encouraging that kind of over-the-top display of affection is the complete opposite of how you sh- should present yourself to an unfamiliar pup or dog. You are the one who is making the decision. You are the one in charge. And how you carry yourself into the situation and what signals your body language sends are something that any dog will recognize and decode immediately. Do you want to concede the position of power in that relationship immediately? Absolutely not. And again, this is the same thing as a leader. Now, this doesn't mean, and you point this out in the book, this doesn't mean that you dominate. This doesn't mean that you come in and you're you're overly aggressive. And I talk about that all the time with being a leader. This doesn't mean that you come in and you're barking orders at people because that doesn't work either. That that So you got to find that balance just like you do with... Uh, with humans, sure. Yeah, there's a couple things with that. Again, with dogs, especially because it's it's so simplified, you know that that uh, that element is reduced to a, a very primal nature. You know, so when you have a dog that truly is dominant, if you display that, guess what? You're getting in a fight. Uh, if you have a dog that's not that way, and you display that, what happens? The dog is scared. Uh, when the dog is scared of you, no different than if, if you you know have have a child that's you know at the third grade level. You know, when they walk into a classroom. Uh, or they're sitting in the classroom and the teacher walks in and, and they blow their anal glands, you know, because they're, they're getting ready to get whipped with rulers and, uh, you know, electrocuted or God knows what else, uh, they're not going to learn anything. 
on the transverse, if when you walk in, they're throwing spit wads and playing tag and, and ignore you entirely, they're not going to learn anything there either. So just like in all walks of life, there's balance. But what what it is is it's, it's exactly that. It, it's it's maintaining a level of of emotional stability, uh, a, a calm demeanor, and, and a rested uh, but calculated mind in terms of how you interact with that animal. And it's it's really, it's not hard at all. There, there's two videos that I, uh, in, in my online thing, called Be the Man. Uh, Be the Man Part 1 and Be the Man Part 2, where I do exactly that. I don't say really a word, uh, in essence, to, to two different dogs, both very strong, very dominant dogs, that it, you know their, their level of prey drive for a toy, a ball, a tug, what have you, is such that if I have it, they just, you know, they, they start shaking and barking and bouncing and, the, and they'll try to take it from me even though they're both personal dogs of mine in the past their drive is so overblown and overdriven that that it overrides everything common sense wise and you actually can't use that to train them because it's it's so so overdriven but so some people are all excited about prey drive but you can have too much prey drive if you're not balanced um i, I would say that it's to me i would say no there's no such thing in my opinion for the dogs i work with i would say there's no such thing as too much uh, there is too much to do certain types of training with it. If I'm trying to teach obedience, focus, uh, stuff like that, no, I, I won't use balls and toys like that because it is too much. I'll use food or, or body language. Now, when it comes to controlling impulse and things like that, yeah, absolutely. But it's after I've done enough repetitions to where it transfers from being a decision to a reaction. No different. But you can end up. With, can you end up with a dog that his prey drive is so high that he you can't take him to the park and trust that he's going to, or can you train it out of him? You can train, you, well, you can control it. You can cap that drive by reinforcing it. So think of it this way, and, and this is the, the more drive and lack of impulse control that dogs have, um, the more you know energy, et cetera, all the things that, that typically wind dogs up in shelters, all of those, those components uh, are something that can, that can absolutely be controlled. But the thing to remember is that think about the first fist fight you were ever in, or even if it happens now, think about where your mind is at. It's at a very elevated state. Mm -hmm. Just like when you see an amateur fight or the first couple fights, like, you know, they're swinging for the fences, they blow their wad, they, you know, whereas you see a guy that's calculated, that's been doing it a while, he knows how to control that. That's, that's what, in essence, what you're teaching the dog, but you have to do it. They can't rationalize that. The way you do it is the exact same, though, is that you're putting them through so many repetitions, no different than think about the very first time you were on your primary and you pull the trigger and nothing happened. You had to think, okay, I'm going to put it down, it's trigger control, and you're doing all the, the things in your head. At a certain point, that becomes a reaction. Right. When that becomes a reaction, then you're trained. Same thing with the dog is that you've got to do those repetitions using things to reinforce it. If the dog is in that state of mind, because the, the key component is you got to do it when they're not in that state of mind. To be able to control them when they're in that state of mind, you have to build that foundation first. Just you know, you can't you can't teach a, a fighter how to be composed by doing real real matches. That comes in training, and so it, the the parallel again is 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 exact. Uh, is that you've got to you've got to use a classroom. And what I do, I use a forty by forty classroom where I use a clicker, food, treats, affection, body language, and I and I teach and shape all these behaviors that I'm trying to teach until it becomes a reaction, and then I just slowly start to introduce distractions and, and graduate them K through 12 uh, until, they're, until they're doctors, you know, uh, of going out. And, and some of the videos I have of some of the dogs I've worked with, you know, and, and one of them is a black German Shepherd, 
I actually just sold him to a, a big Metroplex uh, SWAT team. But um, I, I could take him through Walmart off-leash. I could take him to parks where kids are playing soccer around him. And this is a dog that even if I have a ball, he'll, he'll bite through my hand to get to it. Uh, and I could get to where, without using any punishment, without using any compulsion, just by doing shaping and reinforcing and, and using uh, you know, that A plus B equals C over and over until it became a conditioned response. And now the dog uh, works on autopilot. But it's like your name. You know, when somebody says Jocko, you don't have to think about responding. You've heard it enough times to where you, you do that. You know, um, same same exact prim, prim, uh, principle. But. What's up with resource guarding? Um, usually, what it stems from is uh, is an, again an, an inadvertent creative created behavior. Uh, kids messing with them, taking food from them. A lot of times, you know, see people. I want to be able to take food. I don't mess with the dogs when they eat. Now, I need to be able to, to bump them, walk by them, take it from them if I have to. Um, but it's it's when a dog has really high drive for something and you compete for that over and over and over, you're building, uh, think of it like a barrier in the dog's mind. And you've got a, your goal is to kind of hit the, the refresh button on the computer screen in that dog's mind. And so, um, you know, what I'll do like if a dog has real heavy resource guarding with, uh, with food, as an example, is that now I'll feed that dog his entire ration of food from my hand throughout the day training. So now it's not me setting a bowl of food down and now you're going to guard it and, and get, get crappy with me. It's, you know, when you do what I want, then you're, I'm going to mark it and reward it. You're getting it from my hand and it just breaks that context wide open and now, now it doesn't become a thing. Mm. Um, in the police dog uh, realm, one of, the, one of the most common examples of, of that behavior, misfiring, is, is outing. Uh, when we're doing bite work and that mm. dog is in that crazy elevated state of mind and he's, and he's overlapping prey and defensive drive and you're transferring back and forth, um, is that now you say, okay, let go. Just like the first time you got in a fight, like you know, one of your buddies taps you on the shoulder, hey, hey stop fighting, like you don't hear that. So to, to reach that dog's mind when they're in that elevated state, it, it all boils down to you got to enter their mind first to communicate. But is that when they're in that elevated state of mind, what, what usually happens is they use an e-collar or a prong collar, or they grab their, uh, the dog's flat collar, they'll roll it, twist it, just like a guillotine choke, and lift them off. Um, all that does is create conflict between the handler and, and dog, and, and, it, and it builds and creates possession over objects. Uh, so with a ball, uh, you see it all the time. People, oh, my dog won't give me the ball. How do I get it from him? What are you doing? And you're watching him. He's chasing the guy. You know, he's chasing the dog around with the ball. <laughs> how, do, how do I get him to let go of the ball? Get another ball. Make your ball sexier than the ball that he has. The second he drops it, you mark it and throw the new ball. Just like that, now the dog will spit it out for you with no conflict, with no, no problems whatsoever. But it's that way with everything. It's with food. It's with toys. It's with you name it. You, know? you talk a lot about indifference in here as sort of a... I don't know. It's, a, it's like a base sort of reaction to a lot of stuff, and I notice that with my dog. If I want my dog to drop a ball, I, I if I just ignore him for, for for five seconds, the ball drops out, and then he looks at me because he knows, like, okay, can you can you pay some attention? Because I want you to throw this thing again. Boom! Bend down, grab the ball, throw it again. Yeah. He comes back. He wants to he wants to fight for it, but if I ignore him, just just look away for three seconds. Yeah. Ball gets dropped. Bend down, take it. Yeah, I mean it's the same. It's the same barroom psychology. You know, why aren't you paying attention to me? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, to, to to bring it back to the dog aspect is that you know if think about it from from more of a almost a primal nature. Think about kids. When you watch kids, what's what's a very natural? When you bring several kids together, what do they do naturally? They chase each other. It, it's a natural function in, in animals uh, on the planet. 
Uh, dogs are no different. So if they have something, it, it's a game as much as anything. But you can you can turn it into something more serious as the dog gets older and they become more possessive and driven because you've built those barriers in their mind. Uh, but in terms of the indifference piece, 100%, the, the, one of the first things I do uh, with the Warrior Dog Foundation, the, the nonprofit that that I have that uh, we retire, you know, former spec ops dogs and, and police dogs and contract working dogs and all, all sorts of different dogs. But uh, the very first thing I do with all those dogs is I have a pouch of food. Uh, I have a clicker. Uh, and the clicker, just for those of you that, you know, to, so that you understand what I'm talking about, it's just a little mechanical device. It has a button on it. You push it and it goes, and it just makes a, a very mechanical sound that's unique that pairs whatever the behavior is with a reward. It's, it's a bridging of stimulus. So um, just think about it like taking a picture, you know, is that you're, you're letting the dog know that the, the instant of what's taking place right this second is correct and a reward is, is attached to that. Uh, but anyway, so I, I let them out of the gate, and I've got a two-and-a-half-acre training field around my kennel facility, and so it's just me and the dog walking around with a pouch full of food and a clicker, uh, and I, I completely ignore them. Um, and, and I purposely walk away from him. And any time that dog comes over to me, I mark it, reward it, turn around and walk away from him again. And I'll do that for five to ten minutes, three, four times a day for a few days. And, I mean, we've taken in over 80 dogs over the last uh, eight years, seven and a half, eight years. And uh, to this day, there's not been a dog yet where, where that has not worked. Uh, and I've done it with a lot of other dogs too. But uh, is that even if they hate people, you know, they're... Uh, defensive aggressive they're environmentally rattled they have PTS type issues what have you uh, is that 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 element of you getting paid and, and me shaping certain behaviors works on on all of them but it works the same way with people you know that's one of the things in terms of some of the, like the leadership stuff that you do is that is that operant conditioning that positive reinforcement you know that the four quadrants while yes I, I work primarily in the in the um, positive reinforcement realm I do use positive punishment I use negative reinforcement negative punishment but uh, for for the layman, think of it from you know if your uh, your spouse is out of town and you spend the weekend uh, cleaning the entire house, right? Uh, it's spotless. You know the kids are all in check. You know the old lady comes home and, and the the house is spotless. The very first thing that she recognizes is that the one thing you didn't do was take the trash out, and that's the first thing she's like, "You didn't take the trash out? Like, oh, I guess I'll have to do that." You know, and that, like that's her response. How likely are you to clean the house ever again? Very. <laughs> Not likely. Not likely. Uh, whereas, you know, on the transverse, if, uh, you know, she grabs a hold of you and whatever, um, you know, or gives or you some positive reinforcement, gives you some positive reinforcement, maybe in another room, uh, then, uh, then, you know, that, that speaks for itself, you know, so it, it's that same element. You start calling me Mr. Clean around here. <laughs> I don't have to brick your head. Uh, yeah, you'll be cleaning the house every weekend, you know, so it's, um, it's just it's a it's a very simple element of uh, you know one of the the analogies you could use too is it's the difference between slave labor and a job with great benefits you know at the end of the day a task is being performed uh, but one you know the the level of drive motivation satisfaction happiness on one end they're two you know 180 degree uh, bipolar or disparate uh, opposites so um, you know it's just it's just basic reinforcement but if you look at Everything a dog does in that in that regard, uh, in that you know every every time that they do something that you want, it gets marked and reinforced. Every time that you they do something you don't want, it gets extinguished and or corrected. It's very black and white. Um, another quick example is uh, toys in the house. You know, mm-hmm. people are like, oh, my dog's chewing this up, chewing that up. Do you keep toys in the house? Well, yeah, he's got Kongs and other balls and stuff. 
my my rule of thumb and my advice to everybody is uh, make it black and white in the dog's mind. Again, he doesn't know the difference between a tennis shoe, a stuffed animal, a Kong toy, whatever. It's all crap that's laying around your floor. Uh, you know, can you make them distinguish things? Yeah, but let's not put the cart before the horse. Like teach him to respect what you say first, and so he doesn't get to play with anything in the house. If he knows that nothing gets in his mouth inside the house other than what I hand him, then th- then it's real easy to teach him, don't chew on stuff. Uh, it, it's outside, it's in a crate, it's in a kennel, that's when I'll give you things to play with, to chew with, to tug with, whatever, and, and build that engagement, work on the bond and relationship, whatever. But You have in here, when I see so-called problem dogs, the problem stems from an imbalance of power and relationship, not from the dog. So that's that's like the root that you see all the time. The person's weak. We we have pretty much already talked about that, and it's the same thing you see a lot with leadership, where you've got a, someone that's that there's an imbalance of power, and and where it gets more complicated with humans is humans then do their own kind of self-correct, and a lot of times they overcorrect, they undercorrect. You know, if they're being too if they're being too micromanaging then they they go all the way to the other side of of total laissez-faire and and now people don't know what to do or if they're being too laissez-faire then they go straight to level 12 uh, micromanagement and again it's just it's just a a a personality thing or a mistake that they're making and it imbalances the the relationship that we have with you because it's like well well, I want you to tell me something to do I want you to give me some guidance I just don't want nothing yeah and and people lose that Here's another one. It's important to establish your authority over a dog. Dogs want, need, and seek that kind of presence in their lives. You just hammer this over and over again. It's easy in some respects to get a dog to fear you, but it can be equally easy to get a dog to respect you. Just as true with human relationships, a dog will have more respect for you if you make it clear that good behavior gets rewarded and poor behavior has consequences. You may have noticed I have not used the word like or love up until this point in describing the human-canine relationship. That is not an accidental omission. I've purposely not used those words because too far often I encounter people whose immediate response to a dog is to try and get the animal to like them. Mm-hmm. In doing so, they make fools of themselves in the dog eyes, possibly put themselves in danger because they assume that they know that how they treat their dog is okay with a different dog and mistakenly believe that because of all the nice things they do for their pet, their dog should obey their wishes and, and desires unconditionally. If you take one concept away from this from this beginning part of the book, it's this. Don't mistake liking for respect and don't mistake <clears throat> obedience for trust. We could be talking about human beings right there, clearly. Especially kids, you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. kids. Uh, and employees, yeah, because it's it's not a popularity contest, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where so many parents and uh, administrators or coaches or uh, supervisors, et cetera, go, go wildly wrong is, is worrying what somebody thinks about them, you know. Um, and again, I mean, it's the, to draw back to the microcosm of, of the dog training process is that, you know, what, what's the end goal? getting your kids or your employees or whatever to, to think you're cool isn't part of the process. <laughs> you know, it, it has no, no relevance. Well, I mean, it, it has no, no product productivity. Yeah. Uh, and, and what's interesting, uh, Leif, Leif used to run the Jotsi course, uh, the junior officer training course, which is the guys, the, the young officers coming out of buds. And there was a, an officer, this is the other end of the spectrum. There is an officer that would come in to talk and eventually Leif had to like, like back the guy tactically out of the schedule because he would say, if you're an officer and your men like you, you're doing a bad job. 
that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not that you don't. It's not like you want your dog to aggressively hate you, and you don't want your employees to think this guy doesn't care about me. In fact, I talked about this uh, a, a little while ago. Like the more you, the more you care about your people, the more they'll care about you. The better performance they they deliver, Absolutely. right? If they don't think you care about them, well, then they're not going to deliver any kind of a performance other than the absolute minimum that's required. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, from, from the dog perspective, that's where, you know, the, there is a little bit of a difference in that with dogs, it's about engagement. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the examples I use is, you know, how many times have you been to a, a park? Right. And you see there's and it's usually dads, but, uh, you know, there's a dad sitting on the bench on his phone and his kids are swinging, playing tag, whatever. And he's oblivious like they could get kidnapped and they wouldn't know any better, unfortunately. Whereas that dad that's pushing them, that's playing tag, chasing them around, grab ass with them, all that kind of stuff. Now, when he goes back, hey, honey, what'd you do? Well, I took the kids to the park. But those are two disparately different experiences. Now, think about from the perception of where the kids are at, the difference. Like, it's night and day. Mm. Same thing with a dog, you know. And, and that's one of the things I'm, I'm uh, so adamantly against dog parks. Dog parks are the iPads to, to dogs, what, what iPads are to kids. Uh, you know, you can't have a substitute for that engagement with them. You know, you can't outsource your relationship. Uh, and, that, and that happens like that. way, way too often. You know, again, whether it's with kids and uh, you know, with dogs, whatever, like, you know, th- there is an element of just like with anything is that, you know, there's, uh, you know, training franchises, uh, that, that I'm actually planning on launching here later this year to help with that process. But it, it is, it's an augment, you know, and there is no substitute for, for what you have with, with your dog, with your spouse, with your children, whatever. There's, there's nobody that's going to be able to, to make that work for you if you don't want it. Just like, Somebody comes in, make me a good good jujitsu artist. Like, well, you got to want it first. Like, you got to be willing to put the time in. Yeah. You know? and with dogs, it's, it's no different. To that point, here's back to the book. The bottom line is that if your dog isn't doing what he is supposed to or what you want him to, it's not the dog's fault. It's your fault. Accountability. It's your fault for not spending the time needed to train him properly or not being observant, observant enough to recognize early on when and how your relationship may be out of balance. Many people are too lazy to achieve the results they want. If having a spectacular relationship with your dog were super easy, everyone would have, a, have that and I wouldn't be writing this book right now. One common excuse I hear all the time is I don't have time. Well, I can assure you, you do have the time. What you don't have is your priorities in the order they need to be to have a great relationship with your dog. This is a little bit of extreme ownership for your dog, and it's something we say all the time. Your, your team's not doing a good job. Whose fault is it? It's your fault. You're the boss. That's whose fault it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and what I would hope uh, is that, that the, the people that read that, read that, that, you know, that you can take that that self-evaluation seriously, you know, and, and, and again, I mean, when I, when I read extreme ownership, I was like, yes, it, it's textbook, you know, it's, it's the same, same exact principles and that, you know, if, if you're the one in, in charge, guess what? You know, if it's not going well, it doesn't work down. Yeah. It's, it's not trickle, trickle down responsibility. You know, it, it goes straight to the top and, and that's something I'm, I'm adamant about with my employees is that, uh, you know, if, if you don't understand, if you screw up, within reason, uh, it's, it's generally going to be my fault. Right, right. You know, um, if you don't understand what you're supposed to do or, or you, you know, something happened that, uh, that you weren't 
prepared for or whatever, then ultimately it's my bad. You know, whether it's me putting the wrong person in, in the position to, to experience that or me not giving you the guidance prior to, to putting you in that experience to be able to deal with it. Because with dogs, it's dynamic, you know, mm-hmm. just like in the workplace, you know, training people to, to work with some of these dogs that we get in. Like, I mean, it's it's no circus. It is a circus, but it's no joke. Uh, it can be a circus, you know, but it's the same same type stuff, you know. You talk about building the relationships here, going back to the book. Working In my training of working dogs, I still put myself in the dog's position and understand that it was important to establish a positive rapport with that animal before I began making too many demands on him. So th- this is the the crux, really, of, of where I wouldn't say, you know, nothing that, that's in this book or anything that I subscribe to uh, is not anything new. You know, th- I mean, people have been have domesticated animals for thousands of years. What I will say is that um, I, I generally don't find people uh, spending as much time on that that simple component um, as much as I do. And, and this is where I draw from my time with hard-driven, dominant working dogs that are biting people. When, when you get in a bite suit uh, and you're working a, a dog uh, and, and developing him, no different than you'd bring up a, a young fighter, is that, that, that is what, what a decoy's job is to do, is, is, to, is to build confidence. And, and with dogs, you know, the, the nice thing is is that when it comes to, to aggression, prey and defense are two sides of the same coin, you know, just like uh, reproducting uh, – reproduction and killing are two sides of the same coin um, is that when I'm when I'm in that suit and I'm reading that dog I'm, I'm exuding all of these things on him I'm either making him uncomfortable and putting him in defensive drive and then when he responds the way that I want gives me you know aggression responds in kind with aggression I, I go back into prey drive take all that pressure off and reward him coming forward I'm teaching him to fight me and and come forwardly aggressive um, but the the way that that I have been able to develop uh, that same strategy with pet dogs is because when you're in a suit and dealing with these dogs that are on a, a level 12 out of 10 by comparison to the pet dogs we deal with, is that you know you have to be so uh, over overblown or um, so dramatic with with how you're doing it to be able to affect these dogs that now when you're dealing with pet dogs it's it's actually really easy. Uh, but what what it, it made me realize is just that same concept works the exact same way with those dogs. Is that is that entering that dog's mind and getting that relationship first before you have that, you are completely wasting your time doing anything else. Uh, again, no different than you know if, if you're a, a boss with employees or uh, you know a, a military uh, leader or uh, pick anything. Is that if, if there isn't trust and relationship there first as the foundation, you're you're building a, a shanty on on sand, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, of everything else you try to do. That without that, uh, you're you're essentially wasting your time. And and so I, I hammer so hard on the relationship component because it is it's, I mean that that's a universal truth in life. Yeah, you know, uh, and it escalates too. The more you build that relationship, the more you can demand. And of course, in a relationship, you're not demanding from people. But the more you build a relationship, the more you can ask for someone sure. to give to you, and the more they'll do for you because you have a good relationship with them. Sure. And, and there's there's also a reason, especially on my online training, the the first five months, there's no corrections whatsoever. There's no punishment. There's there's nothing. It's all bonding, relationship building, and reinforcement and shaping behavior. That's not by accident. The reason why is that a lot of times people, they don't have a relationship with the dog. The dog's getting into X or doing Y or whatever. Let's put a prong collar or a remote collar on and let's punish him. 
lot of people do that. There's training franchises that the, the backbone is using remote collars, which I, I vehemently disagree with. And it's not about uh, a cruelty thing. It's about an understanding is that if I, if I have a great relationship with that dog, and again, you know, the work environment, whatever, spouse, uh, and then we've gone the the full run of shaping and reinforcing desired behaviors, and I have clearly communicated to him and positively taught him what the expectations are now when he's not performing up to that standard. Now if I correct him and punish him, guess how much more effective it is? You know, because at first it's you're just you're just some other jerk mm-hmm. that's putting your knee in my rib cage or electrocuting me or you know jerking me off my feet with a prong collar just like all the rest of them. Whereas now it's it's like your dad saying I'm disappointed in you. You're like, what? <laughs> you know, it's 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 a lot more impactful that way. You know, so it means more. Dogs this is back to the book. Dogs respect confidence, power, and authority. And by dogs, I mean all dogs. Mm-hmm. I don't care how much of an alpha role any dog is assumed. When someone comes along who exhibits those three traits to a greater degree than they, they will step aside. With the exception of the the four the, that I the four four that, that you I've come across, <laughs> but you know those those are dogs that I, I can assure you that nobody on the in the eighty three million dog owner pet spe- spectrum have ever run into. You know these are unicorns for sure. What'd you uh, do with those dogs? Um, bred some of them. Um, one of them was out on the West Coast, actually, uh, as, as a working dog, just retired here not, not too long ago. Um, if I had to, to pick probably the most gifted uh, physically across the board dog I've ever come across, it was a dog that, that was out there for several years um, that came in. We put him through his first handler course. Um, and he de- deployed and did several deployments and uh, just, I mean, he's a freak, you know, an absolute freak. But um, the, f- the first, here's a funny story. The first time I met him, so we were running our, our handler course at Auburn University at their Canine uh, Detection Research Institute back when it was still in in, uh, in progress. This was in 2011. We brought the dog in and uh, we were staying at a local hotel there and it's an eight-week handler course putting the dog through. And uh, my very first introduction to him is he was staying in the room with his handler and they'd spent some time together and had bond- started to bond. And uh, it was like a Holiday Inn Express. They had free pizza. And uh, so, of course, I'm like, well, I'm not going to pass up free pizza. So I've got a, a paper plate with a couple pieces of pie on it. And uh, I walk into the room. And the dog just kind of cocks his head, looks at me, runs over. And literally like a dude, like a team guy, jumps up and just, bap, just slaps it right out of my hand. And he leans down and starts eating it. And then I, I started to lean down. And he just looks up. And I, I've been around enough dogs where, like, I was like, you know, I'm just going to let you eat that. <laughs> Enjoy that pizza. And just, yeah, that one's on me, buddy. And uh, The first time I saw our dogs working, and I forget who brought them out, we were, we were doing some training. And, you know, we, it was set up, but the, the, the task unit was doing a hit in a building, and there was a guy that was going to run, a decoy was going to run. And I was out there, and, man, when they – so I see the decoy go, and you see the dog sees it, and the dog – you, you you can feel it man this dog is ready to murder this guy as if this is just the most insane level of passion mm-hmm. and he's just on the end of that thing and that you can see the handlers let let him let it build let it build let it build he pulls that quick release bro i was like oh my god it yeah. was insane to watch him fire off and he took off like 10 feet so when he finally got, like, he's going a million miles an hour across this field. Mm-hmm. He takes off about 10 feet and just nails this guy, drags him to the ground. I was like, okay, this is a good little system to implement here. Yeah. No, I mean, from uh, the neat thing about it, I think, capability-wise, um, 
is that it's you know it's a it's a non-lethal form of yeah of capture you know uh, which is obviously very valuable uh, the deterrent aspect the psychologic intimidation factor yeah that's was, a real beautiful thing too you know there's there's a lot of elements to to having those dogs there's there's just you know it's amazing you see it especially in, in law enforcement um, you know but you'll have guys that will literally stand there with six armed officers and fight all six of them you know drawn on getting tased pepper sprayed you throw the sixty-five pound pointier little little Malinois out, and the dude lays straight down. Yep. Like oh, I'm not messing I'm with that. <laughs> you know, and uh, it, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, but you know, you think about it from from again from the human component of it's not natural to be attacked by an animal. You know, mm-hmm. and nor is it something that most people a are comfortable with, b have ever experienced. Most people have mixed it up, especially if they're getting drawn on by six officers. It's probably not their first fist fight, uh, you know. But so, yeah, I mean that that element of it is is pretty uh, is pretty awesome. Back to the book: the lax, permissive attitude that exists in our schools, our homes, and our society in general has trickled down into how we interact with our pets. While there are some benefits to our living in a kinder and gentler society, there are also some huge drawbacks. This is particularly. This is particularly true as it pertains to dogs. Some people believe that it's impossible to have a well-trained dog and to never have to physically correct that dog. I wish that were true, but it's not the case. Let me be clear, I don't employ and I don't advocate the use of any kind of unnecessary force. But please understand this important point. If all you ever do is reward your dog for good behavior you have, and, and you have no consequences for bad behavior, then your dog will not have a complete understanding of what's expected of. So when you were talking about you know, the, the fact that you sometimes do have to use a call, uh, a pinch collar, you have to use a choke collar, you might have to use a, a digit, was it, a remote collar. Mm-hmm. You might have to do that stuff. In fact, you probably will. Yeah, there, I mean, there's there's always the chance. I mean, the, the best way I can kind of uh, break it down is, is think of it from raising kids or, again, employees. Like, if, if the... If the consequence uh, is is the absence of reward, that's you know you yes you may come across a dog, but again this is an outlier exception anomaly whatever coin phrase you want to use. Th- those aren't realistic um, aspirations to have with a dog. Like just like with kids, like yeah, hey, if you don't clean your room, you're not going to get those peanut M and M's. Oh, okay, well I'll go do it. They may be like, hey, you know what? I'd rather not have peanut M and M's and just not clean my room. Now, what are you going to do about it? You know, like you're going to run into that as a dad. Uh, Shock collar. Yeah, yeah, two of them, cattle prod. Uh, you know, so the you know that it's a bit of an oversimplification in terms of you know where, what it really boils down to is is you know when, how, uh, how often, you know, things like that. I mean, it, it really is not so much a matter of, of if it's when. Mm-hmm. It's just being smart about how you're implementing it so that, A, it's effective. I mean, kind of my rules of thumb for implementing uh, compulsion or positive punishment is, uh, is that it's not when you're emotional about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not when the dog does not understand why it's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and then the last thing is that the instant that the behavior has ceased, the punishment has to also uh, what you find a lot of times, most times, uh, and especially early on, if that relationship hasn't been built and that foundation isn't there, again, I can't explain anything to a dog. A lot of, a lot of people, you know, we all have our expectations. I know I want the dog to sit. I don't want him to grab sandwiches. I don't want him to knock the kids over. I don't want him to bark when it's 3 in the morning unless there's somebody breaking in. He doesn't know any of that. You know, so we have to teach them. Uh, and if you, again, just like with the human component, if you're trying to teach somebody something and they don't understand what's expected of them and you're punishing them for not understanding it, mm-hmm. 
that, that sucks, <laughs> you know, and that's unfortunately, that's how most dogs go about their lives is that, you know, I don't have a relationship with this dog. Let me throw a, a prong collar or an e-collar on him and make him do these things. And, and he just shuts down and he's aversive to it. Talk about that drill where you put the, the uh, e-collar on people yeah. and you have them do a little task. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real simple, you know, it, it dovetails on to this, uh, you know, this kind of principle is that, you know, again, so that, so that you can put yourself in a dog's shoes is that, uh, and so what I do when I run handler courses, um, you know, let's say it's you two, I'm going to have, you know, you be the handler, Echo is the dog, so we're going to put the e-collar on his bicep, I'm going to take you out into the next room, roger that. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out in the room and say, okay, we're going to come back in here and I want you to get Echo to take this echelon front thing, uh, put this here and put that there. That's his his task. So it's, for those of you that are listening, it's like a menial task. It's put a pencil and a paper clip onto a box, and yep. they're going to be sitting on the table in the middle of the room, all separate from each other. And there's a bunch of other stuff. There's a bunch of other table. crap here. So when we come back in, now you don't say anything to him. We're not allowed to talk. Right? <laughs> And, and so now Echo just starts grabbing stuff. And every time he grabs the Sharpie, he gets shocked. He grabs the, uh, the, the T, he gets shocked. He grabs the knife, he gets shocked. He messes with the paper, he gets shocked. After five or six, maybe ten, you know, he's a strong guy, he can take, take some punishment, you crank it up. He's not getting it, he's messing with the wrong stuff, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hammer him harder. What's he going to do? Very quickly, he's going to do this. He's just going to sit here and say, I'm, I'm not touching anything anymore. Yeah. He's, he's, he becomes aversive to all the stimulus stimuli on, on the desk. Uh, on the transverse, and so what that teaches you is that if your dog doesn't understand that, that that's what happens, and, and that's the position you're putting your dog in is the very one you're in, and, and it sucks, so don't do it, mm-hmm. um, is that you've got to explain to him what, what you want, and you do that through shaping and reinforcing. And so the transverse is now we go out, we pick a different drill, um, and we come back in, and now you have a clicker. Um, with humans, you can say, hey, the click means that, that it's good. With dogs, obviously, you have to pair something to it. But humans, click and a treat. Yeah, you, you can click and give them a jelly bean or whatever. But uh, so now you come in, and, and the the only um, absence of that is when he like if if he grabs the sharpie now and that's not part of the drill, nothing happens. Very quickly, the dog will do what's what's called learns through self discovery, and they start to offer behaviors. You, you probably see it in, in your dog sometimes when they just start doing stuff, looking at you. If you have something, and they start doing arbitrary movements, they're trying to figure out what it's going to take for them to do to get what what they want that you have. And so now you wait, and once that once he grabs what what you want, you mark it. And so now he's like, okay, well, it's something with this. And now it's fun. It's a game, and he's trying to figure it out his mind's working. It's positive. Everybody's having fun. The, the first example, it sucks. You know, it, it's painful, it's stressful, uh, there's cortisol, it's chaotic. And again, that dog's A plus B equals and C. You, and you say the percentage of success zero. in the first method is zero. zero per, I've, I've not ever done that, and I've done it God knows how many times. I have never done that experiment where somebody successfully performed that task, not one time. Uh, on the transverse, I'd say the only time where, where they haven't been successful is due to brevity, is that it's mm-hmm. taking longer, but they, they either get really close or they finish it, uh, and everybody's laughing, you know, because the you know the whole rest of the class is watching, and, and uh, they're usually laughing during the the e collar one, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know. But but it, it 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 paints a very clear picture because a lot of times people they have not put themselves in, in the dog's shoes again, just like with leadership, is you got to relate, you got to understand how how it's going to impact people when you're implementing different protocols or procedures mm-hmm. or leadership principles. What does that look like on the other side? You know, it doesn't matter if it makes sense to me. It doesn't matter if it, if it seems sound to me. If if they view it as like, well, this is crap. Mm-hmm. It's unfair. It's whatever. It may be, but you've got to you've got to figure out how to manipulate it so that 
that they understand a what the expectations are, b what the consequences are, and then c ultimately what what comes from both of those depending on what they choose to do. And that's to me that's the beauty of operant conditioning with with dog training is that you're you're letting the dog dictate the consequence. And no different than with any of us, it, they enjoy it, you know, and it stimulates their mind, which they need, which is another benefit to bonding and relationship with them is because if you're the one stimulating their mind, guess what? Now they want to hang out with you more. They will listen to you more. Mm-hmm. Your, your blue chip bank just gets overloaded because they've had so many uh, positive experiences where they've had different things that, that's desirable on your end that doesn't mean anything to them. But they're just trying things out, and now they do it, and it gets marked and rewarded, and it's fun, and it's a game, and it's just it's a it's a self-replicating process that uh, that has a, a ton of benefits for you, for you and the dog. I thought this part was interesting. You're just and, and it's important to know as well to understand dogs a little bit better. Um, a dog's sense of smell is somewhere between ten thousand and a hundred thousand thousand times as sensitive as our own there's a pbs television show nova where a guy named james walker and this is a quote from the book he said if you make the analogy to vision what you and i can see at a third of a mile a dog could see more than three thousand miles away and there's another example alexandra horowitz the author of inside a dog did something similar but kept the comparison in the olfactory realm you can tell when your coffee has tea or sugar in it by taking a sip of it. A dog could sense that same teaspoon of sugar diluted in a million gallons of water just by using his nose. That's insane. Yeah. Well, and from a so there's two reasons why that's important. On the working dog side, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty clear to see the benefits that 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 has in terms of uh, you know sniffing explosives that are buried and. Uh, detecting people that are hidden in false floors and tracking people and things of that nature. Um, on the on the pet dog side, where that comes into play is that is that same um, you know from a relationship standpoint is that they recognize you by the way you smell. Uh, they recognize your kids by the way they smell in terms of of training, interacting with them using treats, rewards, toys, things of that nature. It uh, you know it, it plays big big dividends or, or pays big dividends too. So it's just one more component that. You know the the reason that the that the book is called the Navy Seal way, and I, I, I if there's one thing I could say that I, I wish I had done a better job with uh, was kind of relaying why why that is is that you know when I think about our reputation uh, and our efficacy and success as a community since its inception, uh, why is that you know and, and it's it's everything that's in this book just related to dogs it's well it comes by selection. You know, have have a, a very uh, stringent uh, selection process, but then above and beyond that, you know, s- seals don't have the the success and reputation because um, because they're good shots or in right. good shape or have great intelligence or have some of the best platforms and and augments in terms of close air support, ISR, whatever. It's because they have all of those things. You know, it, it's it's managing the, the every single intangible that you can possibly manipulate and control and stack that deck in your favor. So it's not just training. It's not just selecting the right dog. It's not just feeding them good food. It's not just keeping them in good physical condition and an ideal body weight. It, it's not any one, you know, component of that. It's all of them. Uh, and so that the Navy SEAL way, it's, it's more about us on a, on a on a big scale in terms of how how we've gotten to to where we've gotten and, and by using all of those same same concepts you know and, and I used all of those same concepts as a trainer in terms of my selection process is is god awful um, you know there's times where we would go on on 
on trips to 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 find dogs and 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 since then even where you know I may look at dozens or even hundreds of them to find one you know um you know sim I would say probably attrition rates uh, are even even worse than than buds you know I mean you may have a, a fraction of a percentage or or in the single digit percentage of dogs that I look at that actually end up making it so um you know but it it's it's that crux of uh, and again same same with business it's like it's not just having good accounting. It's not just having good leadership. It's not good just having good recruiting. It's not just having good budgeting and funding. It's it's all of those things, and and when you manipulate the environment and stack the deck in your favor, make things very consistent and black and white, have a an ideal um, have an idea in your mind of what that finished product is and be able to visualize that, know where you're at, develop a plan and execute it. Again, it, it just goes back to the. Uh, the microcosm that dog training is that uh, that that uh, mimics life. But talk about this thing in the in the book. You talk about look for the intelligence behind a mistake. What do you mean by that? So, so I, I found that pretty cool. Yeah. So the you know the intelligence behind the mistake is is essentially a teaching moment. You know, is that understand why it was made. Ultimately, it's it's you as the handler's fault. Uh, for why mistakes are made, but but understand why the dog made the mistake, you know, and and it could be, you know, it's, it's generally gonna gonna be reduced down to lack of communication on your part, uh, a a confusion of expectations on the dog's part. Same with humans. Uh, same with humans. Both yeah. those. Same with humans. Yeah. Um, and then and then the, the last thing, which is probably one of the most imperative things, uh, same with humans, is is bringing emotion into the the equation. Uh, dogs are, are while they have some simple emotions that mimic humans they're nowhere near as complex one of the jokes i start a lot of my uh, speeches out with is if you want to find out who loves you more your, your spouse or your dog lock both of them in the trunk of your car for two hours <laughs> after two hours come pop the trunk who's happier to see you <laughs> and uh you know dog be like hey buddy where you been you know your wife's gonna slap the hell out of you so uh but th- they are that simple you know and it's it's an achilles heel of sorts we were talking about it before we came on uh, co- came on air is the iphone yeah. You know, that, that's really do- dogs are actually so simple that, that we as humans, because we're so much more complicated in how we think and emotionally charged and, and what have you, that we make them way more complicated and harder to train than they actually are. Uh, it, it's a it, we need to oversimplify it. And, and to me, not to get too far off on a tangent, but the, it's, it's kind of like world world policy, you know, foreign policy from a, from an international standpoint is that sometimes the simplest solutions are the best for the most complex problems, you know, foreign policy being a bar fight. You know, uh, if, if, if you're going to walk into that bar, you're going to get in a fight, you know, and you better bring everything to bear to yep. make sure that, that you're safe. But realize that by walking in there, no matter whose side you take, no matter what happens, you're going to create at least one enemy, probably several. You know, so you, you better make damn sure that going into that bar is worth going into before you go into it. To me, that's a pretty simple solution. It's a simple way to look at, at the world's problems. We don't do that. You know, uh, we overcomplicate it. But uh, it's that same same mentality with a dog, though, is, is that, uh, you know, most times it's the most simple solution to, to what you think or perceive is the most complex problem. And it's really not that complicated. But yeah. Yeah, you talk. Uh, you you go through a whole section that's about reading your dog and and what signals to look for. And it's the same thing with people. You know, you got to learn how to read people. But you talk about their eyes. You talk about their ears. What their ears are doing. You talk about what their tail. And this is these are all things you told me when I was getting my dog. Is you know things to look for. And man, they were spot on. Just just looking at their posture. Interestingly, we just had Jordan Peterson on. We talked a lot about posture. He's got a new book out called 12, 12 Rules for Life. And the first chapter 
this is how to live your life. The first chapter is stand up straight with your shoulders back. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. And you can see that in dogs. Mm-hmm. And you can see that, you know, in the way that you stand around your dog. You've already talked about that a bunch today. But um, just to just to make sure that you have good posture mm-hmm. as like simple as that might sound. And what do you look for in the posture of a dog? So this is where it, it depends on what the... Um what you're looking for what the end goal is you know if i'm looking for a pet then i I probably don't want a cocky scorpion tail ears up chest out looking like king kong and and like he owns the place for a good strong working dog yeah i want a dog that that's going to make make my back end pucker by grabbing a leash and opening his gate and clipping it to it like this dog's making me a little nervous because he's walking around looking at me like i don't sweat you Mm. that's one, one of the biggest misconceptions is growling um you know people think you know growling growling is weakness Growling is is being scared, um, and and it's peacock feathers essentially. It's a, it's a dog's way of saying, "You're making me uncomfortable. I'm going to do this in, in hopes that it makes you, you know, it calls your bluff and backs you down." Um, when I see a dog that growls, I know I can get in his head faster than a dog that's standing there looking at me with his tail just feathering a little bit, with his eyes pinpointed, di- you know, non non uh, dilated pupils, and and uh, looking at me like, "Dude, bring it." <laughs> and uh, you know, that's the dog I worry about, not the dog growling with his with his hair up and and his ears back and his and his lips curled. You know, that dog I know I I can run him if if need be, but. Um, it's just a matter of, of grabbing a hold of yourself and saying, "Let's we're going to do the man dance and I'm coming after you. <laughs> and 99 times out of 100, that dog doesn't want anything to do with it. But, you know, for, for a pet, you know, again, it depends on, you know, am I active? Do I want a dog that's going to play a deterrent role in terms of protection? And, you know, do I just want an active companion? Do I want a docile dog that, you know, my kids can snuggle with? You know, so to me, again, just like with the uh, kind of the, the – the macrocosm of you know what what do you want out of the dog you know let that drive your decision and work backwards from there but um but i think the key point is here know that there's traits or visual clues that you can look for that indicate what kind of a dog what kind of personality the dog has absolutely And, and if you don't know those and you just go to a random place and you pick the dog that came up to you fastest and was wiggling or the dog that was all shy and looked so cute in the corner. Yeah. There's consequences to getting those dogs. And they're, they're all over the place. And if you don't know what you're getting, you're wrong. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the conversation that we had before you uh, selected yours, you know, the, uh, you hear a lot of things. People say, oh, turn the dog up upside down or put him on his back and see if he's calm. You know, and there's people that, you know, if he's calm, that's the one you want. If he's active, that's the one you want. To me, it's all, it's all crap, honestly. Um, what I like to do is, is just like in, in any other selection process, I want to take the dog out of his comfort zone and see, now see how he, how he reacts. His comfort zone is where he's been raised, where he's been living, with his litter mates, with his, his mom. Uh, you know, if you go to a breeder's house and you evaluate a puppy with the, the litter running around and the mom standing there, you are not getting an accurate representation of what that dog's genetic components are, not even close. There, there are so many things that have been smoked and mirrored uh, in the dog's benefit, he's going to look much stronger and better and, and active and drivier and dominant and whatever than, than he truly is. If you want to really see that dog at, at his genetic face value, take him somewhere where you know he hasn't been by himself. Yeah. You told me Home Depot, which yeah. I think is a great – because there's things going on in Home Depot. Tons of stuff. There's noises. Yeah. There's a bunch of people running around. Kids. There's other dogs in there. Yeah. There's kids. There's all kinds of chaos going on in the Home yeah. Depot. Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll find out about a dog's environmental nerve faster than anything there, you know. Um, and so – but it can be anywhere busy. It could be a parking lot. It could be Walmart. It could be an airport. I mean, wherever you can find that Home Depot is going to get flooded with uh, – 
yeah. test dog dogs. Owners, yeah. By the way, just FYI, test dogs, like the little puppies, they're not potty trained yet. <laughs> so FYI for everyone here. Here's a cool uh, story you put in here. Back to the book. Carlos came to my care several years ago. He was seven years old at the time, but he had bit, had to retire from the teams. During an operation in Iraq on a raid that resulted in an intense firefight, he and his handler approached a building suspected of housing cached munitions. Just short of the entryway, a remotely detonated IED threw the pair back several yards. Carlos broke his back and his hind legs and hips and collapsed his sinuses and his lungs. For privacy reasons, I can't go to the injuries his handler sustained other than to say that they were extensive. Medical personnel acted quickly and both the dog and the handler survived. Carlos nearly prevented that emergency treatment from being initiated. Despite the severity of his injuries, he crawled to his handler's side and took up a defensive perimeter near his fallen comrade. No one trained Carlos to do that. He did it for one reason, loyalty. And that, you know, that can't be taught, you know, just like it can't be in, in people. It can be reinforced. Uh, you know, it can be conditioned, tweaked a little bit one way or another. It can be broken for sure. Uh, but that, that is, a, in my opinion, a, a primal uh, genetically inherited trait that either exists or it doesn't, just like with heart. Um, you know, and that's, uh, that's something that's excruciatingly rare, obviously, both in humans and in dogs. And that's one of the, one of the ways I test a dog is, is that, is I want to test their heart and, and see if, uh, if when push comes to shove, if they, if they want to fight me, you know, and, and Carlos was, was a warrior of, of, uh, the highest magnitude, no doubt about it. Um, you know, he, Spent several years with us and then ended up, uh, I retired him to a, a dog friend of mine in Florida that had him for a little while. And the last picture I got him got of him was uh, watching the Super Bowl laying on a leather couch with a Kong in his mouth <laughs> a couple of weeks before he died. So, right on. Yeah, he got, got the full spectrum, uh, got the full retirement. <laughs> Good deal. You know, uh, dogs possess, here back to the book, dogs possess the capability to be loyal. Capability to be loyal a dog owner as a dog owner You should not take that loyalty for granted or exploit it You should work to give your dog a reason to be the most loyal to you. He can possibly be I mean does that not go hundred percent with human beings as well? Yeah. It's it's you know, let your dog know that he can trust you. Yeah, be a leader be, Make sure people know that they can trust you. I mean come on Here's an, another interesting little story you got in here So you got a guy Bob who whenever he's working on his car. He loses his temper goes crazy throws tools around he doesn't know why his dog doesn't, you know, like it. Uh, back to the book. When Bob lost his cool, even though Bob didn't direct any of his anger at his dog, Rudy, the dog, wanted no part of that scenario. Maybe Rudy was more sensitive to those kind of responses than other dogs might have been, but Rudy basically lost respect for Bob. Bob was the guy he expected to be in command and in control, and he wasn't. What made things worse for Bob was that he knew that was the case. So, so I, the reason I pulled that one out is because, again, I talk about all the time. Hey, if you lose your if you lose your temper as a leader, you're you're, you're weak. You're you're going to look weak. You're going to appear to be weak. And and some people can't control their temper, and that's just wrong. But even a dog, even a dog, will look at a leader that loses his temper and go, "Okay, I can't, I can't. I'm not following you." Well, to me, I, I would say not not so much even a dog. I would say especially. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, you know, b- because it's you know I, I can't. I can't talk to my dog and say, hey, sorry about that. I lost my cool. It's not going to happen again. You know, I'm still your boss, but, uh, you know, let's, let me make it up to you, you know, whatever. Yeah. Not, not that that's how you'd approach it anyway. But, but my point is, is that, you know, you, you have that, that A plus B equals C 
principle in everything. You know, it's whether it's shaping behavior that you desire, it's uh, eliminating uh, undesirable problem behaviors that you've inadvertently created. It's uh, you know breaking um, breaking trust and, and ruining relationships. You know, one of the things that I, I like to tell people. Uh, and again, it's with, with, you know, human relationships also is that trust is like a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when, when you break it, it's crumpling it up into a ball, you know, you, you can flatten it back out, you can iron it, you can get it real close, but it it will never be the same. You know, if, if you truly break it, you know, the way Mm -hmm. that a lot of people do, um, be careful with that, you know, because you only get one, one crack at ruining it. And Mm -hmm. then, uh. And then you're you're faced with an uphill battle. The nice thing with dogs, where they're more forgiving and and pliable mentally than uh, yeah. than our human. You put them in the trunk of the car for a couple hours, and you're still all right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Then you the, the transverse of that is that is if you show your dog that you're unflappable and you consistently project an image of authority, then your dog will understand you can count on you. So so don't lose your temper and don't do that as a leader either. Here's another one that you throw in: rewards like corrections should be proportional. The surest way to reduce the effectiveness of a reward is to overuse it. And that's obviously true with people as well. First of all, if you're if you're not just with your punishment and somebody makes a small mistake and you hammer them destructively, that's not helping you. And at the same time, if everything that they do good, you're jumping up and down like a cheerleader, that's not going to do you any good either. And same with a dog. Sure. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing, the, the varying the reward schedule um, – and also, there's times where echoes all into variable rewards. Yeah, right. Isn't there some kind of well, there's, psychological there's, yes, thing? Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. The, with dogs, it's an, it's excruciating. You told me about dog. something with with iPhones, though. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you're looking certain. for the little thing to pop up, yeah. and you think maybe this is the message from from whoever from the president. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. Is, could be the one. Could be the one. Yeah. Instead, it's just an advertisement for something. Yeah, sometimes. But one day it is a message from the president. But and that keeps you in the game. Keeps you in the game. How, how many of those have you gotten? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you use variable rewards with the dogs. So with with, uh, with training, it, it's kind of, again, it just falls into a cumulative process. At first, it's every time, you know, so that there's the consistency. So that, that that's the explanation of the expectation is that you do this, you get that. You do this, you get that until now it's it's wired. Once it's wired, now it becomes... Just like if every time you pick anything, pick anything mm-hmm. you like, you know, every Friday we're having steak and ice cream. Like after a while, it's like, no, nah, steak and ice cream again. Mm-hmm. So that that Got dog will it. get to a point where now it's actually we're not having steak and ice cream. We're having tofu burgers. <laughs> Joke's on you. Like He's like, wait, what? You know, so now whatever it took that week to get steak and ice cream on Friday, maybe I'm going to work a little harder. And you, you'll see that out of them. And so and this is more on the on the competitive side. But, you know. When you're judged on on flashiness and precision and speed of execution, when it comes to different behavioral uh, components of obedience routines, and people want to speed those up and make them more laser-like in their precision, that's a very effective way to do it. Is that now sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. So now the dog is it's the lottery mentality of doing scratch-offs. You know, I mean nobody wins the the, the Powerball, but the scratch-offs. It's like ah, you know, you made twelve bucks. Yeah, you know, I can almost buy what I just spent on them. Uh, <laughs> you know, I almost got my money back. Let me buy them again. But but we're you know human beings are wired that same way. How many people waste their money on scratch offs? A bunch of them, uh, for that same reason. It's it's a it's a psychological aspect that uh, that actually is very powerful in a dog. But the, the the caveat to that is that you know make sure that it's it's an ingrained conditioned response before you start doing that. Uh-huh. Um, 
but yeah, it is powerful in terms of the flooding. Um, when I when I'm bridging certain things together, like if I want to go from you know I'll teach a dog to recall, which is come to me first. When I'm teaching him to to get his back end into you know his shoulder hits my knee, starting at, at kind of a healing position mm-hmm. in the sitting position, that's one component. And then actually walking off and, and starting to heal. When I want to bridge all that together, so, so you know if I just give him the the what I call a plots command, which is Dutch for place is that the dog, you know, it, it does all of that. You know, mm-hmm. he comes here, he gets into the plots, and then we, and then we heal off, basically. When, when I bridge certain things together, if I've been building a couple different components, then when, when it clicks the very first time, I'll flood five, six, seven rewards all, all right at, 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 at once so uh, that he's like, oh, payday, it's whoa. a jackpot. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, almost a successive approximation in terms of, you know, teaching different different steps, no different than in jujitsu, um, yeah. different elements of a move or whatever, and then once it's paired all together, now they get the tap out and they're like, sweet, you know, same same type type of thing. Yes, ding 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 ding. Uh, back to the book. Beware that your dog has no concept of what words mean. In other words, if you repeatedly say the word down, as in down down down, your dog will associate that more lengthy expression as his cue to lie down. Keep it simple and clear. Simple, clear, concise language. I did the you talk about in the book. I did the broccoli thing with my with my dog with my wife, and she was all shocked, you know, because I was like, "Hey, your dog, you know, even though you think your dog knows what you're saying, he actually has no idea." And then you you talk about it in the book, and I did it with my dog uh, yesterday. I said, "Hey, our dog has no idea what he's what we're saying." She says, "What do you mean?" So I said, "He doesn't know what sit means." She says, "What do you mean?" I said, "Watch this." And so I, I gave him the come. He came over. And I said broccoli, and he sat right down, just like I had said sit. Yeah. And she was all looking, all confused. Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, that's right. These dogs don't know what it's. It, but it's the body language, and it's the expectations, and whatever little subtle cues I have when I want him to sit, I did it. Yeah. And I just the word came out of my mouth was broccoli. C- context, hundred yeah. you know, percent. What do- dogs are, you know, the the beauty of dogs is is how powerful context. The Achilles heel is also context uh, for that same reason. But um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's important to, to make that distinction. That's where, uh, you know, using using that shaping of behavior is your best friend in terms of, uh, you know, like I said, I use a classroom. You know, there's a reason why libraries and classrooms are the environments that they are. So when we teach our kids what we want them to know, it's a distraction-free environment. It's, you know, a positive learning experience. It's a, it's a petri dish for education. Uh, when, when you try to, to do things where, you know, the dog is in the house and doing all these other things, um, you know, there's all these other stimuli going on and, and it's distracting and the dog's not picking it up and it's not building that context. So I use a 40 by 40 training classroom. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a fenced in area with nothing in it. Mm-hmm. And we go in there and I just stand there and wait for him to start doing stuff. And then I, I mark it and reward it and shape it. And then from there I start to shape a little micro nuanced, you know, the dog just turns his head, one, you know, a fraction of a degree, one uh, one direction I mark that and reward it. If I'm trying to teach a place command, he looks at the bed, I mark it and reward it. He takes one step, I mark it and reward it, and I just build on that over and over and over. And, and the neat thing is once they, dogs kind of have to learn how to learn that way, you'll see that light bulb go on. As soon as they understand, okay, you have what I want, and I have to earn it. I have to figure out what it's going to take to get it, and they start to offer these reward, or offer behaviors through self-discovery. Then, then that is when, when you own their mind and you can teach them anything. Uh, and that's one of the first things I teach is, is a place command for that, that simple reason alone is that it's so powerful in a dog. If, if he can look at me and he, he knows 
dude has what I want and I have to actually go away, away from it yeah. to get it, then then it's it's on. It's a know? huge step. And I know this question's gonna get asked all the time, uh, but you put it in here. Not only is it possible to teach your dogs to perform tricks, but I believe you should, regardless of the dog's age, so you can, in fact, teach an old dog new tricks, That's which right. is... Uh, Everybody's question. Uh, yeah, everyone How has old? It. What about puppy? Yeah. I mean, do, you, do you fill up the hard drive at some point where they can't learn anything new without forgetting something else? Not any more than any of us. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can learn. They, can, they can, will continue to learn. And, and to me... One of the reasons dogs, as with people, expire earlier than they probably need to is because of lack of, of that stimulation, that mental stimulation. Um, you know, even if the mind or even if the body can't can't perform, there's a lot of other ways that you can get dogs to stimulate their mind and, and keep them uh, younger and healthier and happier than, than just letting them expire on a dog bed, you know, five feet away from you. Letting your heart get too much in the way of your head and what's best for your dog will end up causing that heart more pain in the long run discipline equals freedom amen <laughs> right yeah. i mean if you have an undisciplined dog that dog's going to be miserable you're going to be miserable everything sucks yeah pretty much absolutely yeah i mean it uh like i said i mean the the that's one of my big goals moving into this year is um is basically starting like a shelter campaign of signing up for the online training, saving a dog, and, and uh, we're going to be launching it here real soon. But um, you know, I, I I firmly believe you know whether you want to call it a calling or whatever is that you know my goal is to is to revolutionize how your average everyday dog owner views, communicates with, and interacts with their dog. Because how many dogs a year get sent to the pound? Three point three million dogs every year get surrendered to to shelters across this country and. It varies year to year, but usually between six and se- six hundred and eighty and seven hundred and fifty thousand dogs uh, a year get euthanized. That's over two thousand dogs every day getting put to sleep in this country, even at those numbers. You know, and mm-hmm. it's it's not as bad as it as it was, but it's still astronomically high. And the way I look at it, very simply, is that you know shelters, God bless them, um, are, are great great resources, and we as Americans, very charitable. Uh, have opened up our hearts and wallets and, and provided pretty astounding resources for animals, whether it's ASPCA, HSUS, whatever, shelters, rescue organizations, you name it. But to me, it's, it's, it's no different than throwing money at the symptom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not addressing the problem. You know, the problem is why are they getting there in the right. first place? I mean, because with 83 million dogs out there, uh, you can't have enough resources to, to accommodate that, you know. And so it's it's like... Oh, it's like the uh, the pharmaceutical industry. You know, it's 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 dealing with the symptoms and not trying to fix fix the problem. You know, and of of course there is potentially some politics involved with that uh, in, t- in terms of maintaining funding and salaries and jobs. I get all that, but uh, to me, a, a shelter's number one goal should be to have zero dogs in it. Yeah. Um, you know, if if you're not, if that's not your goal, you're wrong, and I'll I'll, I'll call any one of them out uh, right now. Um, you know, your goal should be to be out of a job. In, in my opinion, you know, and, and to me that starts with um, with teaching people how, how to communicate with their dogs, and it's everything that we've talked about, but uh, it's it's really not that complicated, um, you know, and, and the, the gratification you get from uh, doing it yourself and the understanding of your dog, it, 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 it transcends just that, you know, just like, you know, with what you, what you do, um, you know, you can take all of these same lessons and apply them to your kids, to your spouse, to your business partners, to your employees, whatever. Um, and, and it all works the same way. Yeah, we're going to close out the book here. I'm just going to run through these fundamental principles you have. And, and as I'm saying them, 
think about not just dogs, but everyone that doesn't have a dog, think about people. Anyone that's in a leadership position, think about leading those people as it applies to dogs. One, look at things from the dog's perspective. How often is it we get a, somebody that works for us and we don't think about what's going through their brain and why what we're saying, how what we're saying to them or how what we're making them do impacts them? Appreciate the differences in how dogs use their senses to perceive the world. Same thing. Think about the people that you've got working for you. Look at the intelligence behind the mistake. You already you already talked about that. Reward good behavior. Uh, duh. But how often do we not do that as a leader? Punish or extinguish bad behavior. Duh. Again. But how often do we let little things slide? We just if you're letting things slide, if somebody wants to be late day after day, oh, that's okay. We're saying it's okay. Next, be consistent in the application of awards and punishment. Well, there you go. This is especially true with kids. If you're not consistent with the kids, like they don't learn. Mm-hmm. And and I think opposite of dogs, actually. A kid, if they think they can get away with it once, like a variable reward, is, but a yeah. variable punishment, if they think they get away with it, they're going to gamble that they can yeah. get away with it again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, dogs will, dogs will test the water on you pretty hard that way, too. You know, yeah, yeah. A lot of them are more, more intuitive and sharp than you think. But uh, um, Keep emotion out of the ev- evaluation of good and bad and the application of punishments. This is super smart, if, especially with kids and with employees and with dogs. But if you're punishing your, the people, or your workers or your employees or your dogs out of anger, you're, you're not doing a good job. You're not doing a good job. In fact, just FYI, when I have to do punishment with my kids, I do it in like the most cold-blooded serial murder kind of way that I can. The buzz well, instructor. As if it's <laughs> completely emotionless. As like, well, you know, unfortunately I have to do this because of your behavior, so go ahead and report to the garage <laughs> you know so they're gonna get yeah. they're gonna get hammered but i think that's better well, it's far more impactful you know i mean think about a buds instructor like none of them really scream at you yeah, yeah. you know it's the it's the the antithesis of the of yeah. the marine corps di yeah. like it's just white noise at that point you're just standing there like yeah, yeah whatever yeah. when that dude's like whispering like I'm gonna I'm gonna snatch the life out of your soul and I'm gonna crush it right in front of your face. And you know, the kid's sitting there like 18 years old, blowing his anal glands. Like Jesus, what did I sign up for? Uh, next, understand how dogs communicate overwhelmingly through body language, and use that understanding and method of communication back to them to elicit the kinds of behaviors we want. And and we 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 talked about this before on the podcast. I don't know, you've probably heard this before, but they say humans. Humans communicate even though we're all verbal and all that it's an 80% is nonverbal mm. 80% is nonverbal This is I don't know probably someone will say no, it's not 80. It's 78, but it's, it's a huge percentage <laughs> is yeah. nonverbal Well to me to me where I think uh, you know not to get too off track But the where where the disparity is is that in with technology so much of our communication doesn't involve Interaction, right? You know, it's emails, it's text messages, even it's phone calls, whatever, you know. So I, I think in person maybe, um, you know, but because there's such – that's so watered down yeah. by by everything, you know. Well, people do this. I mean, again, working with businesses all the time, We I uncover all kinds of people that are having all kinds of problems because they're only communicating through email or through text, and therefore the people aren't picking up on all those other signals. Or we have relationships that get destroyed because, you know, I made a joke to you about something, and it was in a text message, and, and I didn't put a LOL yeah. Uh, emoji. Uh, yeah, emoji after it, so you didn't think I was joking, and all of a sudden we got an issue. Yeah. Like, so, so – 
this is definitely something that we have to remember. That's why I have like a rule in emails. I don't joke around in emails. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't, I don't make jokes in emails unless I just completely, if we know each other yeah. and we, we can get, we get there, but I'm not joking around. You know, if I have a client, I'm not saying, uh, you know, I'll be there in a few weeks and hopefully I'll be able to sort your ass out. <laughs> right, right. They're, they're like, wait, wait a second. Right? Even though I'd be kidding, yeah. but they don't know that through the email. Back to the book. Determine our needs and understand how a dog's prey drive, energy level, and other physical traits contribute to a matrix of behavior. What does that say? Know your people. Know your people. What's driving them? What are they motivated by? What's going to make them work harder? Next, provide a dog with ample amounts of exercise and interaction with other dogs and people in a multitude of different environments. What I liked about that is, yeah, the, the obviously exercise, interaction, multiple of different environments. This is where I see people that are in a training capacity. They train people only in one environment, and so they get outside of that environment and they fall apart. Yeah. Feed him a diet with maximum health benefits within our means. Hey, right, eat good food. Steak. Yeah, basically, we know we all know what we're referring to. I brought home some of my bros gave me a a, a cow femur mm. the other day. I brought it home for my dog, yeah. just a raw cow femur. Yeah. You want to talk about a pumped up dog? <laughs> Rock and roll. Yeah, he, he's still just getting after yeah, that thing. That's what nature intended. Right yeah. There. Before undergoing formal training, develop a bond of mutual trust and respect. So get that relationship going before you demand a bunch of stuff from people. Become the authority figure in a dog's life that he wants and needs. Take the time to be patient. Do multiple repetitions. Build in different levels of distraction. And employ variable reward schedules, all to ensure that a concept is firmly embedded in a dog's mind. Now, we'll talk a little bit about jujitsu here. Mm-hmm. You got to do the repetition, and then you've got to do it in different. You know, you you got to you got to arm lock. You got to try an arm lock live rolling a hundred times before you get one. At least a hundred, maybe more. And in order to shorten that time, you got to do more drills. And then you can shorten that time from 100. Maybe you only got to do it 44 times before it works. You think about when you learn a new move in jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. It can take a long time. The better you understand it in the isolated training environment, the quicker you're going to be able to do it live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and from a behavioral standpoint, it's the same thing. Like teach it in that sterile classroom and then move it into the living environment, going out for yep. walks, going past dog parks, you know, busy. Yep playgrounds whatever is it you know people are like yeah he's doing great in the classroom and then i take him to the park and he just loses his mind like yep. where did you bridge that yep. like yeah, yeah. you can't go from third grade to uh, to you know a sophomore in college and that's what you're doing like right. you're, you're not you missed you missed about 15 steps in between there you know so my dog was distracted in walmart yeah, no kidding <laughs> yeah. idiot yeah Next, use good problem-solving skills to identify the root cause of a problem and work out the solution to resolve the issue and not just hide it. I, 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 another thing, you see this in relationships and companies where they, they just everyone is hiding this problem. No one will address the problem. Mm-hmm. No one's going to address the problem. So if you've got problems, default aggressive, get aggressive, find the solution to the problem and implement it. That kind of wraps up this book um, like I said team dog is the name of the book how to train your dog the Navy seal way and good stuff in there not just for dogs but for humans as well and Mike obviously appreciate your service and 
not only what you did when you were in the teams, but everything you've done and did once you got out of the teams. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Now, I know you got a bunch of things going on right now. Yeah, well, first off, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's a it's an honor, and uh, I'm happy to happy to do it. Um, yeah, in terms of everything I have going on, I mean, the to me, the the crux of what I would pass on to to anybody listening is is again is is the is really trying to get to the the root core of of communicating with your dog, and and you know, to me, if if nothing else. Let it be an experiment and practice uh, for the rest of your relationships, you know, uh, because it, it does transpire or transcend rather, um, you know, just just training a dog. But um, the online training, uh, just a, a month by month deal, you can go to teamdog.pet uh, to check that out. Um, it's, you know, teamdog.pet. And that's where you have online training where people can learn to solve these problems that they have with their dog, build a good relationship with their yeah. dog, and train their dog. Yeah, it's just it's a monthly lesson. It's a cumulative process. It starts out just like everything we talked about, building a relationship first, shaping and reinforcing behavior, and then working on extinguishing things, correcting problems, et cetera. We're in uh, the halfway through the second year of it, um, and it's it's gone, gotten some really good feedback. There's forums that has – I get on there and I answer questions every Monday uh, with – uh, with all the all the the members and uh, people interact with each other and give each other advice and post videos and uh, and a bunch of other stuff. We're going to launch some affiliate uh, partnership programs here with uh, with people getting other people to sign up soon. But that in conjunction with the book and then launching uh, Trico's training franchises, um, which are going to augment all of the people out there that are subscribers. So basically. You know, it's working with certified Trikos uh, and Team Dog trainers all over the country that have these franchises everywhere uh, that help you go through this monthly training curriculum. And uh, you know, the, the crux of it though is, you know, just like with anything, you need help from some people. You need guidance with learning Olympic lifts or jujitsu moves or whatever. But you I mean you have to put the time in yourself. But this will allow people to, uh, you know, to to seek some some guidance in person from people if they're having specific issues or whatever that they're not able to get from the online stuff but we've had just overwhelming feed positive feedback on success story after success story you know these 65 year old grandmothers that have their labradoodle out there you know healing and walking around dog parks and stuff and then they're just loving it it's, it's pretty awesome but um so that's uh that's kind of the, the big big thing and you talked about trichos i don't even know if we talked about trichos yet trichos is the company that you formed up while you were still in no, uh, it, so this is actually my second dog company, but uh, I formed it a little over five years ago, um, and it's the the crux of it is is uh, personal protection dogs, police dogs, military dogs. We do sell a, a, fair, a fair number of dogs to private individuals for uh, you know the personal protection aspect, and that's kind of what, what it was born and bred out of, in, in conjunction with putting on a lot of police seminars and, and selling police dogs and teaching at conferences and stuff like that, but. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's my for-profit company. If if you, in terms of everything that I have going on, the best place to go is just MikeRitland.com. Um, that that is the resource that talks about the Team Dog online stuff, the Trico stuff, the speaking engagements to book for that, or uh, you know the franchise stuff coming up, or even the Warrior Dog Foundation, the books that I've written. It's kind of a a landing page of everything that that I have going on. MikeRitland.com and the Warrior Dog Foundation. Again, you mentioned it a couple times, but. Just give a little bit of a of a of a plug for that, so sure. people know what it is. So, Warrior Dog Foundation, uh, we started it back in August of 2010, um, and we've taken in a little over 80 dogs at this point. Um, started off with just doing special operations dogs, be it SEAL dogs, Rangers, whatever. 
uh, and we've taken in a lot of police dogs, contract working dogs, military working dogs, and uh, kind of our main main goal and function with that is to act as a as an indefinite sanctuary for those dogs. First and foremost, when we get them in, we evaluate them. Some of them we've been able to repurpose, rehabilitate, and, and get to police departments. And so, you know, some of them have come in, spent a few months, and then we've gotten them back to back to service with working with them and kind of unwinding their mind a little bit using a lot of the same principles that we've been talking about today. Um, but more than anything is that, you know, these dogs are at that kind of where their last resort, you know, they were going to get the blue juice here within days and, and we step in and take them and, and, uh, either just, you know, continually try to rehabilitate them to where we can either rehome them to a civilian application or another police department or whatever. Uh, or we just let them live out their life, be a dog, have fun, chase balls and, and run around the woods and, and hang out and, and, uh, retire in a, out to pasture, so to speak. But, uh, warriordogfoundation.org. Uh, is the website for that if you want to check it out and, and of course we're, we're always uh, gracious and appreciative of, of any support if there's someone that listens to this podcast and gets all fired up to get a dog um, obviously get the book I'm gonna tell you that right now get the book so you can make a good assessment make a good judgment and um, think it's a lot of work to have a dog I have four kids I've had dogs multiple dogs when I had a bunch of kids we actually didn't have dogs for a while because kids and do- dogs are a lot of work mm-hmm. and if you're not willing to put the, the work into the dog then that's you're not going to be a good parent is that the right word? no you're not gonna be sure. a good dog owner so yeah i almost yeah. i almost went mm-hmm. sideways there yeah. so yeah oh like, you're not you're gonna be a bad dog daddy you're a, you're a fur daddy congratulations <laughs> yeah. yeah you're not gonna be a good dog owner and believe yeah. me i had to fight i got three daughters and one son and for the years of me beating them down, saying no dog, no dog, no dog, because I knew that I couldn't uh, put enough time and effort into it to make it a dog, have a good life, and the dog be squared away and be disciplined and be able to you know protect my family. So it took a while to get there, but then finally when my kids were old enough, you know, I got one out of the house, and now we have a good environment for it. And so think about that before you run out and buy a dog. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's like with anything, you know. Um, don't don't do impulse decisions. Do your due diligence and research, and uh, just like you wouldn't uh, just yeah, let's adopt a kid and see what happens, you know. Uh, <laughs> don't uh, don't do the same thing with a dog. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I'm bored. It's Friday night. Let's go to the let's go to the shelter and pick up a new dog. Yeah, yeah. not a good call. Yeah. Not a good call. All right, Echo. Um, we learned a lot about how to help dogs and train dogs. Maybe you could tell us how we could help ourselves a little bit. Is it true that no, no, no. <laughs> dogs don't have a personality? They have a dognality. Get it? Um, I just made that up. That just was now. a joke, apparently. <laughs> hey, dog. but that's okay. But it Beca- took a minute. I need to work yeah, yeah. on the operant conditioning with Echo. So yeah, 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 yeah. Still We're real flimsy. Grab right that shot collar real quick. Positive <laughs> 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 punishment. Oh, I know, man. Anyway, good news is Jocko has supplements. Finally, when I say finally, not like. Yes, finally, finally, like because the whole world is was waiting. Yeah, yeah, like for <laughs> decades, kind. Can I can yeah. I jump in one quick second before that? Of course. We, we are launching a uh, Tricos dog supplement line uh, in the next couple of weeks. Oh, so well, speaking of supplements, go, go on tricos.com. They're for dogs. I'm not stepping on your toes, but yeah. Uh, yeah so you know, check check uh, check into you, that. You're not stepping on my toes at all. In fact, I expect a package yeah. in my house you, for you my will. dog. Amen. <laughs> Get y'all hooked up. So. You just got a but. Yeah. You just got your advertisement in yeah. there. Hey, what you're gonna of, pay for that. Yeah. What 
kind of supplements though? Like, what is it supplement? Just cognitive. Uh, uh, yeah, starting out, it's going to be uh, different oils, um, and then we'll get into collagen uh, later this year and stuff like that. It's all cognitive driven, you know, CBD and and uh, uh, different essential oil stuff and joint supplements and, and stuff like that. So it's a, mm-hmm. kind of a kind of a mix of a few different things, but most of it is is for joint pain, for overall health, cognitive function, things like that. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and it all stems from the warrior dog. Uh, research that we've done in terms of what works with them in terms of raw foods and and different joint supplements and and again the collagen's a big thing and uh, just kind of drawing off of all of our experience with that but keep them physically maintained yeah kind of thing it's it's a big component you know it's like a bunch of broken warriors you know they take take a lot of extra a lot of extra care and and uh and animal husbandry to keep them keep them sound echo was using that as a segue i i could feel it feel it well same thing right Because Jocko supplements Jocko Super Krill oil for joints and joint warfare, obviously also for joints, glucosamine, chondroitin, curcumin. Somebody just asked me about, do you know, with jujitsu, don't your fingers hurt? Right, because you're with the gi. Oh, with right? the gi, yeah, yeah. And it's it's the common answer is yeah, of course they hurt. The joint warfare answer and the krill oil answer is ah, it's not too bad. Really, yeah. Your hands will get like sore, like muscle soreness. Yeah. But my yeah. finger, and then again, it it depends on how much of the gi and how much yeah. grabbing you do. Yeah, I, I do saying? have a low gi grabbing game. Yeah, which is, which is yeah. an awkward thing. It's not that I don't grab the gi because I certainly do. You'll grab the gi. But gee. if oh, I grab that gi. But if you are determined, you get that look right. in your face like you want me to let go of your gi. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to hold on it <laughs> for the last millisecond, and when you pull with all your might, I'm going to let go of it. Because yeah, I'm doing yeah. something else, yeah. but yeah, there's you. You see the Meow Brothers. Yeah, you seen their hands. Yeah, they're all jacked up, and you watch their jujitsu game. That's why, because yeah. they're they're just they will not let go of that gi. They'll get it yeah. in weird positions, and it's it's gonna hurt. Yeah. I don't even know if joint warfare would help him out. Help yeah. out the Meow Brothers. Probably at least a little bit. But yeah, maybe a little. You bit. know, that's that's your you know that's the life you chose kind yeah. of thing with grabbing the gi. Yeah, and yeah, you have a real low grabbing. Yeah. Yeah. Compared, like I grab, I'm, I'm medium, regular gi grabbing yeah. guy, um, no joint pain. By the way, yeah, I'm on krill oil, krill oil, but joint warfare. I think it's gonna help regardless. I Was mean, that, to cure it? Mm, yeah, know. yeah. No, there's certain people. If you have a, like like uh, surgeons, we 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 know people that are surgeons that train jujitsu. Yeah, you got you cannot have a high gi commitment gra- gr- com- yeah. grabbing commitment. That's really yeah. what I'm talking about. I finally figured it out. Yeah. That's what I'm talking. About. I I grab the gi a lot. Yeah. But my commitment on the gi grabs is relatively low compared relatively to low. somebody that's all about all about that life. That's hundred yeah. percent committed to gi grabbing. Yeah, that's true. To me, it's just a setup, though. Like I, when you're when you decide you're gonna get that, you're gonna break my grip. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm there's since that's my game. Yeah, when yeah. you go to break my grip, I know that you're going to break my grip, and I have the 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 chain of events are about to unfold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of like when you're a kid, when, you, when you're playing with your friend or whatever, yeah. you're like pulling his arm, yeah. right? And he's like, oh, he's trying to pull it back. You're pulling it more and more. And then yeah, let go. you let go and you trip his leg yep. and he falls back. Yep. Same thing with Jocko's gi grabbing. It's a setup. Yeah, yeah, it's a setup. Nonetheless, if your fingers are sore from your gi grabbing commitment levels, <laughs> super krill, joint warfare. Mine was the elbows. And my back. Good. Good to go now. Also, the subscription is now available. Oh, yeah. Yep. From what I understand. Well, what's cool is because we have the data, right? Everyone talks about the data yeah, yeah, these big, days. Big so data. We, we have the big data on, <laughs> sure. on Super Krill, 
on joint warfare. And what's cool is when people buy it, mm. they buy more. Yeah. Which is the best indicator I can see because when you try it, you, you feel it yeah. and you want it. And so people had requested we put subscription. So if you want to subscribe, just get the krill delivered to you. Yeah. You can do that. What is that, like a monthly? Yeah, you can do monthly. You can do every two weeks. And you can do it with that. You can do it with Joint Warfare. You can do it with the discipline. Yeah. In case you lack in discipline, Yeah, yeah. you can get it now. Some people, that's all they need, just a little discipline. And boom, they're good to go. Speaking of which, discipline. What is discipline? It's a cognitive physical supplement yeah pre pre-workout for me pre-mission pre-life overall it's pre-mission if you have a mission you take the discipline it'll help it um there's some cognitive stuff in there some a little bit of caffeine right yes get you a little bit fired about up about 15 milligrams yeah because uh, you go beyond that and i start to feel like how much is know. one cup of coffee it's like 45 or 50 right uh no i want to say a cup of coffee Yes, you. I think you are right. I, I think, think it's like, a standard I think it's like forty-five or fifty. Yeah. yeah. So you figure fifteen, you know, yep. a third. Yep. Yep. Something like that. That's what's in white tea, by the way. There's yeah. no coincidence there. That's a little bit more than I thought. Not that that's a lot. It's not a lot at all. Really? Fifteen? Fifteen? Or most people don't. Kind of when I do anybody that's a coffee drinker. Yeah, yeah They won't really nothing. feel it. Yeah, yeah, they're like drinking a third of a cup of coffee is not that much. They're gonna want more for sure, but it's not nothing. Yeah. It's something. It's true. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. To me, that's good. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, you take it before you do some something that requires physical and mental stuff, just like how we were talking about. Mm-hmm. The jujitsu. You don't take mm-hmm. it before jujitsu, though? Do no, you? I do take it. I don't take it before I lift. Right, right. Before you work out, yeah. Because I don't. Yeah, it's yeah. early in the morning. You're just not about I just, that. Not about that. Is I that what you're drinking now? This is white tea. I had a drink of, I had that, the first drink you I had was, was the discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Is it flavored? It is, yeah. and it's, it actually tastes good because Jocko's like that. Yeah. He needs it to taste really yeah. delicious. Yeah, it does taste. It does taste good. I, oh, he's he's talking about my palate again. I know, bro. It's yeah. ju- wait, wait. Who I'm talking about? No, your no, no, no. Mike is. Mike is. Yeah, yeah. Same thing that happened on Jordan Peterson yeah. uh, podcast. Apparently, I have a sensitive palate. What did you say? Refined. I said refined, but yeah. it's refined. not refined. It's, it's so sensitive. yes, discipline <laughs> tastes good. It yeah. legitimately tastes yeah. good. You know what you can do, and I don't recommend this at night. Well, it's a little risky. It tastes good enough to have for dessert. Really, it's got a little sweetness to it, right? It's got if you got a little sweetness, yeah. you can take you can take it for dessert because you think, oh man, I just want to like a little. Oh, boom! There you go. You have some discipline. You got to watch out because it's if unless you have, I, I try not to take it if I don't have something to do, right? Yeah. And if it's eight o'clock, sometimes I eat late at night because I eat when I get done training. If I'm, I don't want to be taking it that late at night, but why? Because the caffeine. Because the ca- just the caffeine and just the whole the whole thing. The microdose. The, the microdose of caffeine. So, but I have. Last night I did because I'm prepping like 14 podcasts right now, so sure. I had, I had some discipline late last night so I could get in the game. What What do you mean dessert though? So what do you sprinkle it on a lemon meringue pie no, or no, something no, like this? Mix up mix up a shake. Oh, and then mix so you a, just a mentally yeah. assign dessert status to yeah, it. It's my dessert now. Got yeah. it. Although the other day I I ate discipline <laughs> straight <Yeah>. up. <laughs> you were with me, yes, sir. And I was saying it's kind of like doing a shot of. Of yeah. of whiskey, because you know, kind of, you do a shot of whiskey, you go, oh. yeah. Did you make it was, like a paste out, or you just powder right I down? Powdered the it. Powdered. I powdered <laughs> it. I ate the it's powder. Like, it's like the creatine days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like yeah, yeah. It was exactly. Just like that. Actually, exactly. Except it tastes it better than the creatine. Better, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, it's kind of like it. the Kool Aid. Remember straight back up, in the day it. when you oh, make yeah. the Kool Aid and you go, oh, let me just get a little. The, the liquor made. 
What's the, what's the oh man? I figured I was like, about to ask you what that is, and I figured it out mid sentence. All right, nonetheless, if or when you do go to buy these things, you go to originmain.com. That's where they are. Super Krill, Joint Warfare, Warfare, Discipline. Get the subscription one. I'm saying straight up, do that. Sounds like a good call. Now that I know that the subscription is available, that's like it's obvious that that's the way to go. Because running out isn't good. No. By the way, like when you ran out of krill oil. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm yeah. kind of mentally drawing upon <laughs> to kind of tell you guys is um, very important. Also, at originmain.com, geese and rash guards. If you are about that gee grabbing commitment and you're going to put on a gee in the event of you wanting to put on a gee or needing to put on a gee, you get an origin gee. All made in America. Also, compression gear, which is rash guards, spats. Mm hmm. Approved terminology. Approved. Um, which are what? L- what's another word for spats? Let's say I'm just tuning in. Compression pants. Compression pants. Yeah. Again, this is spats got approved because we yeah. found out the root meaning. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, you get them from originmain.com. They're all made in America. It's really cool stuff. Uh, other stuff on there, hoodies and whatnot. Anyway, just go there. If you like something, get something. Good way to support. Also. If you are into, and I always say ket- mainly the kettlebells, okay, on it. Mm-hmm. You know, they have kettlebells, you know, on it, right? Mm-hmm. You have the cool kettlebells, the, the primal bells. I have, yeah. the, I have the whole set, by the way. I got, the, I got the, <laughs> they're pretty dope. <laughs> that's why. I got the big Bigfoot one, then Jocko thinks he's all, actually Jocko was salty yeah. that I had a bigger kettlebell than him. <laughs> so, of course, he had to go buy more, but. Nonetheless, I got the whole set. My kettlebell is bigger than your kettlebell. Yeah, apparently. but I got the whole, I got the whole set. Figured he'd carabine or two of them together and start slinging them. Yeah, I'm sure that's what he was doing for a while, and he was like, "There's got to be a better way to compete with Echo." Anyway, there's other stuff on there as well. Actually, I do mention this as well. Maces and um, there's like these little like they're called something bells. They're like these little flat kind of leather weights steel bells is what they're called yeah something anyway they, you want to vary up your workout you know deviate from the, the mundane boring workout that you might be doing right now go there get some cool stuff good way to support also when you buy the books that jocko reviews and also mike's book mike's got three books yeah books yeah. should i say team dog right Yep. How to train your dog the Navy SEAL way. Also, the the okay, and then you said there was two others that were essentially the same book. Yeah. No, so one other is the same book. SEAL Team Dog. Same. SEAL book. Team Dog is the same as this <laughs> young one. adult. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, so there's a uh, there's Trident Canine Warriors and there's Navy SEAL Dogs. Navy SEAL Dogs is Trident Canine Warriors, but it's the gotcha. young adult yeah. young adult version. So. Yeah. So when you're gonna get that book, don't worry, I got you. Go to jockopodcast.com in the book section. It'll be by episode. It'll be all these books and all the other books from other episodes all organized. Take you to Amazon. Boom. You click. Buy them. Amazon Prime. You get the book that same day sometimes. Sometimes. Good way to support. If you're going to continue to do do your other shopping, you know, that lawnmower that you're, you're, you know, on the fence about to buy, get that too. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, any, anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So just subscribe. That's a good way to uh, support. Leave a review if you're in the mood. I wouldn't say leave a review if you're not in the mood. No, don't. I've heard people say that, like, leave a review. Oh, no matter what? 
No. Well, actually, you know what? I'm, that's not true. If you have the it's capacity not, in your life and a good sense of humor to leave a funny review, that's cool. Do it. Yeah, that's strong don't, encouragement. Yeah, don't. If you don't have the capacity in your life to, because some people sure. don't. You know, it's going to take seven minutes, right? Yeah. There's going to be misspellings in there, yeah. right? You really want to post that? No. Just walk away. Agree. Leave a review. Also, subscribe to YouTube because we have a YouTube channel, by the way. Do you have a YouTube channel? I do, actually. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, yeah. You can get there off of mycroatland.com also, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so subscribe, What's the YouTube channel? subscribe to Mike's as well. You look like you don't remember right now. Yeah, I can tell you about 90% on the Mike Rutland website I didn't put on there, so uh, I couldn't even <laughs> right tell on, you what it is. Right but, yeah. well, I've just, watched a bunch of your videos on that. I'm sure if you just put Mike Ritland yeah. in, yeah, yeah, in YouTube. Not to be confused cool. with the other one. What other one? There's not another one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So it won't be confusing. <laughs> there. I got you. I got you. Nonetheless, subscribe. Uh, we, what do we got? The vision video version of this podcast yeah. and excerpts and... Deluxe excerpts. That's what we're calling them right now. Okay. And we're going to work on Fair some other. Jocko, you gave me a good pep talk the other day. Mm. Inadvertent, by the way. Mm. Because you weren't, well, unless it was, it seemed <laughs> inadvertent. You know, like, uh. which, bro, that's the thing with this guy, subtle. Yeah. Like where he'll give you a pep talk, talk and you don't know that it's a pep pep talk at the time that sounds, that sounds more calculated than inadver- in, uh, inadvertent yeah now that i realize that was calculated <laughs> no, you know smile I mean? on my face so yeah thinking, hmm. at the end i'm like leaving the hole we drove back from la whatever and i'm leaving it and i'm like you have no idea what i'm about to do right now i'm about to do all this stuff i got it all planned out or whatever and it's like yeah i don't think jocko realized like that that really helped you know what we talked about yeah he does know <laughs> Nonetheless, you're gonna share what you talked about. Nah, uh, just you know, nah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Just I, stuff. I, I would say this: wait and see. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. It has something to do with me being reluctant to post certain videos sometimes, like gun shy. Kinda, yeah, yeah in a way. Yeah, let yeah. let the hands go, kind of. Let the hands things. go a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Oh, well, the Wayne Wayne Gretzky uh, quote of "You miss 100 percent of shots you don't take." Right? There you go. The, yeah, that yeah. Was that was, that was, was part of the conversation. Actually, yeah. Part Nonetheless. Of the conversation. What that has to do is with is videos. So we're gonna we're gonna release a little bit more videos, different types of videos. But if you like videos in relationship to this podcast in any capacity, just subscribe to the YouTube channel. Also, Jocko has a store. If you don't know already, it's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. This is where you can get Jocko Podcast shirts, Discipline Equals Freedom shirts, Victory MMA shirts, the one that Jocko wears every single day. And, uh, you know, some rash guards on there, some hoodies on there, um, you know, any kind of gear. Jocko, Jocko gear, really, is what it is. Uh, very good way to support, also, psychological warfare, if you don't know what that is. If you're on the path, we call it the path. The campaign against weakness is what we've always <laughs> also called it, you know. And you hit those moments of weakness, like, you know, you, you want to hit the snooze, so to speak. Literally and figuratively, you want to hit the snooze, right? What is hitting the snooze in life? Just like, I can't do it right now. I'll do it later. Hitting the snooze in right? life? Yeah. Like, the, the, let me the snooze l- button should say, hit this button and destroy all of your hopes and dreams. It should say that. Yeah. <laughs> as far as the, I dig it. It should say that. But he, the hitting the, what is, that's like what? Like, I, I don't feel like doing it right now. I'll do it in 10 minutes, right? Can, can I give you a, a product uh, recommendation, a, a new Jocko product? That's yeah, what do you got? developed on this. It's a 
It's a snooze button shot collar. You get the, you get the piss shot yeah, out of you when yeah, you hit the snooze button. I like button. it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Actually, or you can just, you know what else you can do? Is you can hit the snooze button. You can sleep in. And then you can wake up 20 minutes, half an hour later with that part of your life gone forever. Yeah. With, your, with your schedule now being off. With the opportunity to improve yourself physically and mentally gone. Gone. Can't ever get it back. You can take that feeling. You can embrace it. And then you can just go ahead. And next time you see that snooze button, you can get pissed off and get up and get out of bed and get after it. Yeah. No deal. And you know what? In a more maybe echo way of thinking about it too, the you don't even benefit from the five minutes. No, by the way, it's oh, or ten or however no. many. I think like it's you worse. don't even benefit. It's worse. Yeah, kind it's of, worse. Huh? Yeah. I think it makes you more tired. Yeah, because it's not like you're like, dang, I need the nine minutes of sleep or whatever, you know. And then you're like, you get up, you're like, dang, that nine minutes really helped me. Yeah. It's not like that. It doesn't you're work worse. like that. Like you said, you're worse. Yeah, factually. Yeah. yeah. So don't hit the snooze. But in the event of you needing help not hitting the snooze, you listen to Psychological Warfare. And this goes for any other little moment of weakness. Like if you're going to skip the workout for the day. We know those. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, way we do. It's part of life, I think. (laughs) Nonetheless. I just got got my first like mad look from Echo, I think, ever. No, no, you got some before. Really? Well, not not on the jujitsu mats. No, no. Because you've looked at me real mad on the jujitsu mats before. Genuine ang- anger, by the way. Nonetheless, you listen to Psychological Warfare. It's an album with tracks, Jocko tracks. Jocko telling you why you shouldn't hit the snooze, skip the workout, eat donuts, mm, donuts sugar-coated lies. Sugar-coated lies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why you shouldn't procrastinate, which is a big deal. Yeah. Huge deal, actually. Procrastination, I think, is worse than hitting the snooze. Well, it's the same thing. Actually. It is the same yeah. thing. It's that a, it's is, a, it's yes. A, it's, a, it's a physical and psychological manifestation of procrastination without yeah. question you yeah should, your snooze and button bigger. could also say procrastinate now yeah. go touch this button and actually in a way it's even worse actually straight up it's even worse because the snooze button at least has like 10 minutes later the alarm's coming back on mm-hmm. see what i'm saying procrastination is an indefinite snooze button maybe you should call it the procrastination button <laughs> yeah yeah that's what uh, it's called. I don't, that's what it'll be called on the Jocko alarm clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, there it is. But that's what it is, psychological warf- warfare. Day. Hey, look, when Jocko tells you in, in his terms why you should or shouldn't do things, it makes sense. When you just said the Jocko alarm clock, the re- one of the reasons why we actually made this was because people kept saying, oh, you should make an alarm clock, you should make an alarm clock. Well, with this, with the, with the psychological warfare album, you can take those tracks from the album and you can put them as your alarm clock if you choose to do that. The big warning is if you're married, you don't really want to do this too loudly because your wife will freak out. Uh, A couple other things. You can get Jocko White Tea. You can get it on Amazon. And if if you're looking to be able to deadlift 8,000 pounds as a minimum, we have people going above that now. If you get Jocko White Tea, it's a guarantee that you'll be able to deadlift 8,000 pounds. That's in there, right? That's on the package. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, it's already been approved by the FDA and the CIA <laughs> yeah. and double, the FBI. Double, yeah, triple, double blind, triple blind. Placebo. Uh, yeah, that's Jocko White Tea. You know what? Straight up. Tastes awesome. Makes you feel good. Books. Again, Mike's book, Trident Canine Warriors, Navy Seal Dogs, Team Dog. Those are all available. Uh, and, and also some books. I got some books. For instance, what if you wanted your kid to work out? study 
eat good food, train jujitsu, and be highly disciplined. What would you would you want that for your kid? The answer is in there invariably yes you would. So I wrote a book called Way of the Warrior Kid. So your kid will start getting in the game, overcoming fears. Too, overcoming fears. Way. Forgot That's about that one. one. Overcoming yeah. fears, not being picked on, mm-hmm. making a plan, following through. Also, I just had, well, soon to come out another book. It's called Way of the Warrior Kid Two. It's called Mark's Mission. Now we go a little bit further. What if you wanted your kid to take control of their emotions? Mm -hmm. Mm. Wanted them to learn and understand the value of money and how to earn money and how to save money. Wanted your kid to learn about helping other people. Wanted your kid to become a leader. What if you wanted those things for your kids? Well, guess what? Way the Warrior Kid 2, Mark's Mission. It's available right now for pre-order on Amazon. So check that out. Speaking of warrior kids, also there's a 12-year-old warrior kid named Aiden. And he has a business. He's a businessman at age 12. He's making soap from goat milk on his farm. He wanted to make good soap. He said, can I make Jocko soap? And I said, do it. (laughs) (laughs) IrishOaksRanch.com. Get some soap from Aiden, the warrior kid. And I think I inadvertently made up the slogan for his soap it's a simple it's a simple it's here but there's layers <laughs> it's uh, real easy uh, stay clean <laughs> <laughs> i've said that to I, you know i always said that that's a it's an old motorhead song yeah or it's part of it so it's the lyrics of a motorhead song and and what i used to tell whenever somebody tells me oh you know i've, I've been drink, i was drinking and i haven't drank for six months or i haven't you know i was doing coke and i haven't been doing coke for eight first eight months i appreciate it or i was a d- drug addict or whatever and this is all like online these people saying this stuff online and and i always say hey man keep it up stay clean now i wasn't thinking about the literally staying clean right. but now we have there a proper are. soap yeah. that will help you stay clean imagine being a 12 year old kid with a business that's yeah. pretty impressive, yeah. right? It's pretty. Le- that's legit. It was like the furthest thing from my mind at twelve. <laughs> yeah, you think about what you were doing with your twelve. I would, I would, with my friend Jeff, I would, when people were going to thro- put their trays away in lunch, mm-hmm. we would collect their leftover potato chips. Yeah. And then eat them all. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say just like put them back in bags, repack them. No, we just ate them. No, no, we so we have a pile of potato chips on our tray. Yeah, and we just eat them. <laughs> <laughs> complete. Yeah, little, yeah little exactly. bit different. Was I thinking about running a business? Was I thinking about trying to build a business? No, I was eating massive amounts of potato chips, which is just <laughs> other shows you where I was at. Yeah, other people that I didn't even pay for. Yeah. I thought it was so awesome free potato chips. Yeah, because remember when you were a kid, like your your parents weren't getting you potato chips all the time. No, but to have a to have a mound of potato chips more almost more than you could eat. But I mean, mm. we did our best to eat them all. <laughs> yeah, so that's Legit. it. That's a warrior kid books. Also, discipline equals freedom. Field manual. Get it for people that you actually care about and want to have better lives. That's people that you want to win in their lives. The Discipline Equals Freedom Manual will give them a very good indication. And the reason I know that is, well, let's not even take my experiences from my life, but the feedback I'm getting right now, Mm. people are getting after it. They're losing weight or gaining weight or or getting more disciplined in their school, in their life, in their business. They're getting better. Straight up. So you can get that. And and it will show you how. Why? Because it's a field manual. You don't know what that is, Echo. I do. 
My favorite kind of manual. Okay. <laughs> a field manual actually gives you instructions in the military. You weren't in the military. You don't know nothing about a field manual. Hey, if you want the audio version of that, it is not on Audible. It's not on Audible. You can't get it there. It's on iTunes. It's on Amazon Music. It's on Google Play, other MP3 platforms. It's an album with tracks so that you can use that thing for your alarm clock too. Yeah. You can put it in your mixtape. What? In your mi- what's it what's it called? It was called playlist. A mixtape. You put it in your playlist. Not anymore. Yeah, you yeah. Can put it in your playlist now. You can just have it in there. Yeah. So if you, you boom, pick the ones that you like that hit you the right way. Also, extreme ownership, combat leadership principles that you can apply to your business and your life. Other people are doing it. That's why that book is still on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. It's over two years old. It's mm-hmm. still there, rocking. And also with that book, if you don't just get it to yourself, for yourself, get it for your team. Up and down the chain of command. It's gonna make your life easier if you put it up and down the chain of command. If everyone on your team is taking ownership, we have a good team. If you need some help with leadership at your company, I have a leadership and management consulting company. It's called Echelon Front. We solve problems through leadership and we do it all the time and we do it all over the world. Me, Leif Babin, JP Donnell, Dave Burke, Email info at echelonfront.com or you can go to our website, echelonfront.com. Of course, we have the muster. I, I threw, I'm going to throw this out there. The Ultimate Leadership Conference. That's, That's what I'm calling it. The Ultimate Leadership Conference. And, and really, conference might not even be the right word. It's just it's embedded knowledge sure. that's going to come at you. It's an experience. Gathering. It's a gathering. There's no green room. I haven't said that. Lately, yeah, there's yeah. no green room at the muster. That is a good point. Though. There's no back. I know that's why I, I reminded myself yeah, what because yeah. I was thinking about okay, well, why would people want to come to this? Well, yeah. one reason is there's no green room. There's no backstage. We're out there. We're with you. Yeah. You come to the muster. We're hanging out. We're having lunch. We're having dinner. We're asking answering questions. We're with you there the whole time. We've done four so far. They've all sold out. We're only doing two this year. A lot of people are objecting to this. We don't have time to do more. We're only doing two. Washington, D.C., May 17th and 18th, and San Francisco, October 17th and 18th. That's it. We are not a rock and roll band on tour as much as I want to be. Because people are saying, well, why don't you come to Seattle? And why don't you come to Milwaukee? And why don't you come to Norfolk? And why don't you come to Memphis? Like we're on a rock tour. Yeah. Like we're just making dates. No. This is the, the only two we are doing. Washington DC May 17th and 18th and October 17th and 18th in San Francisco Those are the dates we can fit the muster in to our schedule and like I said, they're going to sell out So if you want to come register at extremeownership.com, we'll see you there and until the muster If you want to continue this conversation with any of us you can find us conversing on the interwebs on Twitter on Instagram and on Dutch Facey Boha, Mike Ritland is at M Ritland, and also, as he said, MikeRitland.com. Of course, Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. Echo, anything else? No, thank you. Actually, the, I'm where you were at with the dog thing, where it's like, hey, we can't. Get mm, a dog. Yeah. We, we got to be ready to get a dog. You know, it's my daughter's deal. like, to get a dog. She didn't know she's five. It's a big deal. 
but I don't know, man. Mm. You know, talking to you is kind of like, yeah. yeah, really? I think I could do. I don't know. He's kind of very influential. I mean, I, I can tell you, you can. I mean, it's like with anything in your life. Like, do you, if you want to do it, you'll do it. Yeah. You, know? you got to decide. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right, and and you'll do it. Yeah. You know, but the only thing I would caution against is that realize that that that's carving out a, a portion of your day a portion of your life that something else isn't going to be able to fill that you yeah know? So yes it's, it's, a, it's a you know a prioritization component but yeah but yeah man so cool to meet you and thank you oh no, thanks thank you. thanks for having me i appreciate it mike you got anything else no, that's it just uh guys keep keep up the good fight i uh i am honored to be on here and uh, appreciative of uh of your guys's time it's been been great <laughs> well mike again Thanks for coming on. Thanks for everything you've done while you were in, since you've been out, and everything that you're continuing to do today. I know the dogs have saved a lot of lives. Yeah. And appreciate that. Of course, thanks to all the service men and women out there. And I'll go ahead and, yes, throw out a special thanks to all the dogs out there and their handlers. Everyone in the military standing face-to-face with evil thank you for standing the watch for police law enforcement again and their dogs firefighters paramedics all the other first responders thanks for protecting us while we sleep at night and to everyone thank you for listening and sharing and supporting this podcast but most of all thanks for getting up early every day by seven negative (laughs) and attacking the world with the ferocity of an angry working dog that is out for blood and vengeance go and get after it and until next time this is Mike Ritland and Echo and Jocko out